Welcome back to Second and Short. It is March 31st, 2023, and as we speak, opening day is coming to a close. It has been more than I could wish for. A fantastic opening day. Um, My team wins. Luke's team wins. What more can we ask for? Exactly. Loved it. Tons and tons of stuff to talk about there. Great outcomes. Great baseball. Just all around. And... We've also got, of course, NFL news. It couldn't be a week without the reality TV show that is the NFL. We're going to get you the top 10 inside linebackers list from last season. We're also going to give our MLB division winner predictions. Uh, Originally, when I put this on here, I was under the impression that opening day was Friday and not Thursday. I thought we were going to do this before any games have been played. We aren't, but I think both of us made our lists before games were played. So there's no foul play here. Not that one game is going to change your division winner, but exactly. we're also going to talk premier league this weekend. It's coming back from the international break. We'll hit stake your claim and we'll get the hell out of here. Luke, are you ready to get into the NFL news? Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right. Well, we start off a little bit of soccer and NFL news here. Part of seek seek. Jasim's proposal to buy Manchester United is a guarantee that the Glazers, uh, obviously the owner, um, the ownership family of Manchester United, as well as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, can bring the Buccaneers to Qatar for an exhibition game in the National Stadium in Doha. And supposedly, this definitely appeals to the Glazers. This seems like the stupidest bargaining thing. Like, I'm, I want to buy. This giant, probably the biggest club in the world, from you. And you get to let your football team play American football in Qatar. <laughs> who would they who would they play against? Uh I don't know. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> I, I that's what I'm trying to figure out. Whoever think... else wants oil money. Yeah, right. I think if Tom Brady was going to play an exhibition game in Qatar, that would be a good business move. But with the team that the Buccaneers have now, I I don't think you don't need to you don't need to play in the Middle East, man. Is there is there really even a market out there? No, there's not. And the better part is the fact that Baker Mayfield is most definitely going to break a lot of rules in Qatar. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I I would I would pay. If I were the Buccaneers, I'd pay big money for a handler for him. Someone to watch him. Yeah, put him on like one of those like backpack leashes that you see at the zoo with like for little kids. <laughs> Walk around with Baker Mayfield. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. They have like the strength and conditioning coach walking Baker Mayfield around. Making <laughs> would, sure he doesn't do that? grab his balls on the sideline. <laughs> would you be would you be uh Baker Mayfield's handler? What's your price, Grayson? Nah, I'd I'd love to just third person observe Baker Mayfield out in the wild in a foreign country. Fucking study him and shit. That'd yeah. be awesome. <laughs> I just, look, I'm totally fine with the Glazers selling Manchester United. We can talk about this when we're talking about soccer, but in general, I'm fine with it. I don't think it changes much. We we talked about the idea of them being bought by um, Sikh Jahim or Jasim a couple of weeks ago. And I think we both kind of agreed, like, Manchester United has built up this brand 
primarily from tradition and history. And now you bring in what so many clubs that have come out of nowhere, really. Like, Manchester City was not a fantastic club until they got a bunch of money. Same with PSG. Like, they don't have the storied histories of Manchester United. Imagine mixing this historic club and just, honestly, a traditional mainstay in soccer with billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, which I think Manchester United already have a pretty hefty transfer budget. Of course, I don't think it really compares to the likes of PSG or City. But, um, you know, definitely a team with a lot of money there. I I am so happy for United fans that the Glazers are out because I think that the Glazers have been the one thing holding United back post uh, Sir Alex, I think. And you know, we're going to see a good change here. I, I think the Glazers, you know, like I said earlier, they, they definitely were the one thing holding this team back. And now we get to see them kind of off the leash. And like you said, with a huge transfer with, uh, budget. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out for sure. All right. Let's talk about the Pat McAfee show. Tom Curran went on the Pat McAfee show and just gave us some of the craziest news I've ever heard. He said, there's a conversation happening in New England about Bill Belichick. Robert Kraft expects success, and it might not be Bill's decision when he goes. That is just a giant bombshell. Uh, yeah. Um, Bill, in my opinion, no matter what, kind of like Mike Tomlin, your Andy Reeds, those guys, they're guys that just shouldn't get fired. Yeah, I, I think that no matter how the team is playing, it's probably not Bill Belichick's fault. Exactly. This is really strange news, actually. I, I honestly, I can't believe the, I can't imagine the Patriots without Bill Belichick. Yeah, I, I, I can't either. Uh, there's no coach in the NFL that could just replace Bill Belichick. Absolutely not. And this Patriot history is Bill Belichick's history. I, that is a, such a strange conversation to have. i Look, if it was me, no way I'm moving away from Bill Belichick. And especially, you can look at, you know, post-Tom Brady Patriots. They haven't been as good, but there's a pretty damn good reason that they can still draw in players in the free agency and um, that they've been consistent and been at least a 500 team. And that's because of him. Bill Belichick and – I feel like Bill Belichick and Mike Tomlin are kind of similar right now where they're both guys that – yeah, their their success was a lot in their starting quarterback, but look, they have kept their team so competitive since then, and I feel like that's even more of a testament to how good Bill Belichick can be. No way I'm looking beyond him. Yeah, I feel like it would be ridiculous. Like the day that I see that Bill Belichick was fired by the New England Patriots is the day that I give up on that franchise as a whole. Yeah, he would have to commit a crime for me to even consider it. It'd have to be a real serious one for me to consider it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, if it's like I don't know, something just, you know, just a dumb choice, he'd have to kill somebody for me to fire him. Yeah, but <laughs> not not like an accident, not like vehicular manslaughter, like the guy jumped out in front of him. He'd have to personally kill the person, like, with his bare hands for yeah, me to be like, yeah, you should probably fire Bill Belichick. I mean, vehicular manslaughter, you know, Bill, we can talk about it. This isn't good, yeah. but we can talk hey, about it. Hey, Jim Beheim kept his job at Syracuse after he did it. Yeah. Um, Mr. Mosley on Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. 
he also killed somebody vehicular oh yeah yeah mr mosby before his yeah for sure but um yeah this is a stupid conversation to have i wonder why that's one thing that we haven't talked about yet is i mean maybe this team you know needs a freshen up i mean he's been there for a long time but they're still they're a decent team because of him and they've lost all this talent i i wonder i wonder what the why is here I honestly think that the why here is that this probably isn't the case, but what's the fun in the New England Patriots if we're not talking about them? Yeah, they're they're not, you know, they're not a big market. They're not necessarily the most flashy team, so I I definitely can understand that for sure. All right, let's talk about the NFL's rules. They approved some rules and bylaws. Uh, definitely turned down a lot of them, but a couple of them pretty big. So my favorite, um, this one was proposed by the Eagles. Players are now permitted to use the number zero, single zero, on their jersey. And it allows kickers and punters to use any jersey number between zero and 49 and 90 and 99. So let me tell you, if there's a kicker with the number 99... I respect the hell out of you. Yeah, big time. But as a result of that rule change, Calvin Ridley announced he's going to be wearing number zero, which, baller. I think the number zero is the best jersey number. Really? Yes. I There's something almost intimidating about the number zero on a football field. I like... um. When wide receivers wear single digit, like I think Julio Jones wearing six, I've always thought that was kind of nice. I also like the number three on like defensive backs and stuff. Number one with Sauce yeah. Gardner is kind of cool too. I, there's, I mean, there's a couple, but zero, I, you know what? I like it. Calvin Ridley, he's already coming back. He'll wear a number that has never been worn before. Yeah, I mean, he's poised, man. People are going to be watching. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple of other rule changes as well. Uh, the Chargers proposed one that was approved, which was to make the adjustment of the play clock following an instant replay reversal consistent with other timing rules. Uh, that one's not a huge deal. Um, Houston uh, got one approved to expand the replay official's jurisdiction to allow for review on a failed fourth down attempt. Uh, and then it appears that a majority of the rest are by the competition committee. So uh, they want to change the definition of a launch to leaving one or both feet uh, to make a penalty for tripping a personal foul, to make a penalty for illegally handling the ball for yeah handing the ball forward consistent with other illegal acts such as illegal forward pass, to make the penalty er, penalty for illegal punts, drop kicks, and place kicks consistent with other whatever that one's not a big deal, um, to prevent the offense from benefiting by an extension of the half as a result of their foul, and then. Um. see uh to change the claiming period to monday for players who are waived on the friday and saturday of the last week of the regular season and to insert strength of victory as the second tiebreaker for awarding contracts so that doesn't make much sense to me i don't understand strength of victory i feel like i probably need a little more explanation on that i was wondering the same thing um what what does strength of victory mean Exactly. 
I don't know. That's the problem here. <laughs> do, the, do the owners know? <laughs> Probably not. They're going to put out some like bullshit algorithm, but yeah, I don't know what that means really whatsoever. Um, yeah. Let's see. Oh, the Chargers had a uh, approved resolution, uh, which was to provide to provide greater clarity as to a player's availability for a game. So that one definitely is interesting because the way that the NFL works, um, there is a certain time on Thursdays when you uh, uh, when your game's on a Sunday. Uh, I believe it's Thursday when you have to list your actives and inactives. Uh, guys can still be questionable, doubtful, whatever. They still are considered active players. And so I, I think what the Chargers are doing here is kind of making it a harder decision on whether a guy is active or inactive. Okay. Which... I mean, I like... Yeah, like it, it does a lot. Um, especially for fantasy football. I know that's not really how we should be thinking about these rules, but <laughs> I think for fantasy football, it's a big deal. Cause I personally had to deal with a couple of different people. Um, like it, it was like, okay, they're questionable. And then game time decision, they pull. Them. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah that sucks. And it's going to happen. But I think that with this rule change, I, I think, you know, maybe that, comes you know at least gets diminished i i agree um yeah honestly grayson my my first thought went into fantasy football when i read this so (laughs) i it's it's fucked me over a lot too like you'll have a you'll have a guy that's questionable for like a like let's say like a four o'clock game but your other guy that you're thinking about plays at one and you, you know, decide to not play the guy at one and wait on the guy at four o'clock, and then he's done, like by midday, like ruled out. So, yeah. I'm definitely excited for this one for my own personal usage against my friends in fantasy football. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then T. Higgins decided to switch his number to number five. Uh, he gave a reasoning, uh, I believe it was on Twitter, possibly in just a, a normal statement, that he was tired of being compared to Chad Johnson. Uh, people were calling him Ocho Cinco 2.0. T. Higgins said, "No respect or no disrespect to Chad, but I want to be uh, sorry. I want to be T. Higgins 1.0. I don't want to be 2.0 to anybody." I like it. Good mentality. Yeah, Damn and single digit wide receiver. Yeah. That's I, I'm telling you, those guys just end up getting nastier. I feel like with their single digit number, but I like this for T Higgins. It's a, it's a good statement. And I feel like he's one of those guys that in my opinion is still poised to break out. Um, I don't think we've seen, <coughs> sorry, the best of T Higgins yet, but I'll definitely be looking forward to it this season. Just not against the Steelers. hopefully. <laughs> All right. And Matt LaFleur uh, was talking about the transition to Jordan love and it will be a progression. Uh, He said, in quotes, I think we're fooling ourselves if we think he's going to go out there and perform at a level to the likes of an Aaron Rodgers, which I I feel like this is already kind of the thought here. But if you at any point were expecting Jordan Love to come out and play like Aaron Rodgers, you uh, you must have been going on some darkness retreats with him. 
Um, <laughs> that's funny, Grayson. Um, I, you know, Matt LaFleur here, he's just, he's just kind of stating the obvious. Personally, it, it's a fair statement to make, but if you're rocking with Jordan Love, I, I don't know if I'd really be coming out and saying this publicly. You know what I mean? I, I feel like you're kind of diminishing Jordan Love a little bit because Jordan Love already knows he's not going to be better or as good as Aaron Rodgers. Maybe maybe Matt LaFleur just felt like he had to say it to kind of like, you know, maybe he's worried about how the fans are going to take this transition because the Packers will obviously not be as good as they were last year, uh, next year. But um, I don't know. I, I don't really like Matt LaFleur saying this about his own player. Yeah, I think we're realizing quickly that the Packers franchise as a whole are way too open with what they have to say. Yeah, because we we had some Aaron Rodgers stuff uh, recently that was kind of like, you know, whoa. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times where it's like, you know, you don't have to tell the media this. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let's talk about the commanders because we're getting some interesting developments here. So there's now two fully funded bids that have been placed on the Commanders franchise, one being billionaire and owner of the 76ers and New Jersey Devils of the NHL, Josh Harris, along uh, with his group, including Magic Johnson, as well as the guy we talked about uh, either last week or the week before, Canadian billionaire Steve Apostolopoulos. I heard them say it on ESPN, so I'm confident in it now. Yeah, those Greek names, man, they always look crazy, but they're, they're usually pretty easy to pronounce, I feel like. Yeah, it's not too bad. But according to Adam Schefter, we could see the Commanders sold before the NFL draft. And that is huge because right now, Dan Snyder is a little busy to be actually running this franchise as the owner. Like, he doesn't have time to hop on a call with the GM or whatever. He's too busy telling ESPN he doesn't want to talk to them and telling the NFL that he doesn't want to be talked to in this investigation. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's been on the phone with a lot of lawyers, you know, telling them to cover up all this bullshit. But yeah. it's just great to see that, you know, we're getting the ball moving on getting this organization out of, you know, his shitty little grubby hands. Um, and this is amazing. Before the draft, it is incredible to hear because I honestly thought that he would try, that Dan Schneider would try to draw out this situation for as long as possible. I, I literally was thinking like years before this franchise was sold. Yeah, and it's already been dragged out so long. Like just a couple of years, like in the last couple of years, it's been kind of the idea that like people want Dan Snyder out. He especially to uh, Redskins football team commanders fans since kind of the, a couple of years after he bought the team, it's just been downhill and those fans have wanted him out for a long time. Like in his first year, he brought on a bunch of veteran guys, paid him a ton of money, including Deion Sanders at like the very end of his career. And then they played like shit. And they really have not gotten back to the level that they were playing at prior to Dan Snyder buying this team. Obviously, in 83, winning a Super Bowl and, you know, after that, being a pretty solid team, they totally just kind of tripped and fell with Dan Snyder about the team. Yeah, that's a good point because, um, and, and even during our lifetimes with Dan Snyder uh, owning the um, Commanders, we've seen some 
awesome teams like with you know rg3 and just eras like that where the commanders were you know looking like a playoff team and in some cases were actually in the playoffs but you know they've just always kind of missed it and in my opinion they've had good head coaches i want to say they had mike shanahan yeah for a while and that staff i I liked him the staff under mike shanahan was littered with nfl coaches right now guys like mcveigh obviously kyle shanahan um Mike McDaniel, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on a couple of other guys, but yeah, huge names in the NFL right now played or, or coached for that Redskins team with Mike Shanahan, and they just could not get it done. And it's partially due to Dan Snyder's ownership. And then in the last couple of years, it seems like we're more focused and the media is more focused on what's happening behind the scenes than what's actually happening on the football field with the commanders. Which is a shame because, I mean, that D-line, I, I would put that D-line up against the 49ers. Honestly, that commander's off or defensive line, think of what it would look like with a better team, you know, behind them. I mean, it, and, and even to kind of go off the coaches again, they have Ron Rivera now. He's been to a Super Bowl before with Cam Newton. It, it's not like they don't have the pieces or the weapons. It's It's, a, I think, you know, organizations they're you know they're top down they everything has to be kind of working for a team to play well but you're you're completely right the media has completely lost focus of all the talent on the field because of just this egregious ownership that has plagued this organization for you know i mean however long he's owned it i don't even know whenever he bought it yeah i think it was late 90s early 2000s so pretty much our entire lives yes at least Let's keep it with the commanders, though, because Ron Rivera uh, was talking about the QB job. Uh, obviously, they picked up Jacoby Brissett, and Sam Howell is still there. Ron Rivera said that it's open right now. We will play the guy that gives us the best chance to win football games. He also followed this up, saying that we'd like to we'd like to think Sam Howell has the same type of ability and skill set as Brock Purdy. So, first, I want to get your take on this QB battle. Who do you think deserves to be the starter week one. A hundred percent Jacoby Brissett. Um, Jacoby Brissett, just to kind of quickly give my two cents, has been, in my opinion, completely disrespected by every franchise he's played for. Jacoby Brissett is a QB one with a good offense around him. In my opinion, totally. This this dude can play. Sam Powell, though, is not something that I want them to completely disregard, though. So Jacoby Brissett week one constantly be looking for opportunities for Sam Howell. Yeah, I, I really like that take. Sam Howell is still very young. He was only drafted, uh, I think he was a rookie last year. So like he hasn't been in it that long. It, it's not like he's been around a couple of years. He's been waiting to get this starting opportunity. It, it's a matter of he's there and he's actually competing for the starting job, but Jacoby Brissett has experience, and I agree with you. I think he is a very good quarterback when he's got pieces around him. I want to get your take, though, on Ron Rivera saying that we'd like to think that Sam Howell has the same ability and skill set as Brock Purdy because I think it's kind of crazy to think that two guys who were actually drafted in the same draft are being compared to each other and Brock Purdy's only played six regular season games. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you kind of a similar question. Like, what is it? What is a Brock Purdy skill set exactly? I think it's just I a mean, like, consistent passer. 
Yeah, yeah, like kind of your consistent sort of um, more instead of like the star of the offense, kind of like a piece of the offense. Um, I I don't know if that kind of ability would really work for the commanders right now. I, I think you would kind of have to build up a little bit more of like um, your tight ends and your offensive line to kind of be able to survive as a Brock Purdy, you know, style quarterback offense. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. Let's talk about the Chargers, though, because it appears that the Chargers have opened up contract negotiations with Justin Herbert. Uh, Brandon Staley did not provide a timeline to get a deal done, but did say that the major takeaway is that Justin Herbert is going to be our quarterback. So does this mean this deal gets done this summer? I don't I'm not fully confident in that. I I don't think there's too much urgency. Um, It could be a matter of Herbert wants a lot of money and. I think Herbert certainly deserves it, but we've already seen that the Chargers can't value their players correctly, so there's no telling what they're offering Justin Herbert at the moment. So there could be a a big jump in money, and maybe they want to see more. Not that I think there's more to prove for Justin Herbert, maybe a playoff win, but at that point, if you push him all the way to the playoffs to wait on this extension, my ass is leaving. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, because if, if they let him go this entire season, he could, we could kind of see like an Aaron Judge situation where, of course, we don't know what the Chargers and Herbert, we don't know monetarily where they're at right now or how far apart they might be. But Aaron Judge for the Yankees, you know, they couldn't get him in the offseason. Aaron Judge played um, the last season, hit 63 home runs, and ended up making $140 million more than what the Yankees originally offered him. So if I'm the Chargers, lock him up quick. You know, he's he's going to be your franchise quarterback. Might as well go ahead and lock him up quicker than or sooner rather than later. But if I'm Justin Herbert, maybe to kind of gain a little bit of leverage, you want to kind of push him back to, you know, maybe come playoff time next year. I don't know. That, that's kind of what I think about that, though. Yeah, I think when it comes to a quarterback, it's a trust thing. If they don't trust you enough, especially from what Justin Herbert has already showed them, then why would I want to stay there, especially if he gets a really good offer to go somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, that is true. So uh, I, I feel like the Chargers need to get this done before the season starts. I like it. I mean, if they don't, do you think, I mean, are we looking at a possibility of Herbert not being a charger? Not next season, but the season after. I certainly think it's a possibility. We're already seeing Austin Eckler wants to get out. Now the chargers are trying to say like, Oh, well, there is a way that we could, you know, figure this out with Eckler. But if you figure it out with Eckler, how much money are you really going to have to give Justin Herbert in this offseason? Because exactly. they've only got, I believe, $16 million in cap. Obviously, the extension would start after this season. But if you give Eckler more than one year, his money's on the books, and you're going to get screwed over. Yeah, the Chargers, they've really kind of like... They, they put themselves in a bad spot. They, they really should have tried harder to win it all last year. <laughs> yeah, it's all their fault. It's not that the Jags played really well. <laughs> no, but, but I don't want to take away anything from the Jags. They played awesome. But 
Ah, man, the Chargers have really kind of... I'm worried that the Chargers may have completely fumbled this entire, like, super team that they have, honestly. Yeah, dude, they've got something going here, and they it's it's a franchise that's used to this. Let's be honest. It's a franchise that is one-in-one with failure. Yeah, um, and I know I've talked about it on the pod before, but there was one season where the Chargers had the number one ranked offense and number one ranked defense didn't make the playoffs. This is with Phillip Rivers. Phillip Rivers has had offenses like Antonio Gates. Uh, he even played with Keenan Allen. Uh, Mike Williams, Eckler, Melvin Gordon. And that team also had nothing to show for it. Not even really that many playoff appearances. Like, And when they're in the playoffs, they're not really you know winning or doing well. So you're, you're exactly right. Is This Chargers team is used to having a loaded you know, team as far as, you know, the names and the players, but they just can't, you know, they can't take that next step. And they're, you know, probably about to lose it all and have to do a complete rebuild. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Let's talk about everybody's favorite guy, Odo Beckham Jr. He met with the Ravens, uh, a couple of other teams as well, said that the love there, or there was love there, uh, good meeting, lots of people, teams I bumped into, Eventually, Odell is going to be a big addition to a team. I think that that's what we can conclude from kind of what we see. We saw the private workouts. He looks good. What everybody's saying is fantastic. He's in great shape. I just think that the whole holdup is him as a person. Okay. Can you can you elaborate? Just kind of what he brings to a team off the field is what is holding off so many teams. Like, the fact that he's not already signed. Because there's been a ton of wide receivers picked up. And Odell still sits here without a team, and it doesn't look like we really have a lead on anybody. Yeah, I I mean, you, you hope that he's matured. I, and I mean, it kind of sounded like he did. This was a while ago, but... And I, I know I've said it on the pod before, but he you know, said that his next team, he just wants to settle down and, like, finish out his career there. That sounds pretty good. But then months later, you have him on an airplane, like, in and out of consciousness, slurring his words, and, like, you know, I think having to be kicked off or, like, threatened to be kicked off. So there's just so much uncertainty. And it's also, you know, how much he values himself compared to how much he probably should be valued at, you know, with injuries and performance. There's a lot of things that I think, you know, don't really click with um, GMs as far as talking to Odell. There's going to be a lot of things that they don't agree on. But, I mean, this you know this is good news for him. It sounds like uh, things are going well for him with other teams and stuff. But I, I think you're exactly right. Is him as a person is what's held him back for so long. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of Falcons things. I'm very happy to see a couple of these. So the Falcons first, they signed wide receiver Scotty Miller. Fantastic pickup, solid slot receiver, Honestly, going to be a, a solid piece of this offense with Drake London, Olamide Zacchaeus, and, of course, Kyle Pitts. I think Scotty Miller really fits in here. Uh, receptions first kind of guy. Can definitely make it downfield. Solid. Speedy. It's a, a solid pickup there at wide receiver, and you save a lot of money. Yeah, he's kind of like your um, your kind of Cole Beasley's of the NFL, sort of your short route possession kind of guys, and the fact that they're both white. I mean, I thought I'd say that too. But yeah. Scotty Miller, 
I think he he adds a different type of wide receiver to this Falcons team, and it's a type of wide receiver that I don't think we've seen in Atlanta for a while. But I, I think, yeah, you're right. He'll complement the other receivers around him very nice. And I'm excited to see him get a lot more opportunity with the Falcons than he did with the Buccaneers because, I mean, the Buccaneers were loaded at wide receiver. But Scotty Miller is a good talent, and I think we're going to see a lot of him in Atlanta. And I'm excited to see how he'll do. Yeah, and then the Falcons signed Calais Campbell. Uh, which I think is an absolutely fantastic move. It's going to add to the depth on this defensive line from what we've picked up in the offseason. We've already got Grady Jarrett. We pick up David Onimata. Now we pick up Calais Campbell. The defensive line is quickly forming into uh, like 10 times better than what it was last year. A A team that couldn't get a sack to save their lives and now it looks like we're going to draft somebody probably on the edge uh, at the with the eighth pick. Like it, it looks very good from here right now as a Falcons fan. There, there's just so many things we can talk about with this signing because Calais Campbell is a veteran that can still ball very hard. Um, like you said, they have the guy from the Saints. Uh, what, what, how did you pronounce his name? Uh, David Onyemata. Onyemata. He's going to come in there. Uh, they still have Grady Jarrett, and whoever they get at edge, depending on how they play, I, I think the the big takeaway here is we'll finally get to see what Grady Jarrett looks like when all the attention is off of him. And I, I'm kind of excited because, you know, we've always talked about Grady Jarrett's a wonderful talent in the NFL, but he's a guy that kind of never really has any stats to back it up. So I'm just, you know, I'm excited to see how he'll break out or if he'll break out. Yeah, and then – Falcons owner Arthur Blank told a group of reporters that the Lamar Jackson situation is very different than Deshaun Watson from a year ago. Blank did mention that there's some concerns with Lamar's style and how long it could hold up and brought up that he's missed games over the last two years. This is interesting coming from an owner. Uh, typically, this is something when when we talk about on-field matters, this isn't typically who I'd go to. Yeah, you either you either go to your coach or a coordinator, or you go to Jerry Jones because he he likes to well, talk about and he is. I believe he's technically the GM of the Cowboys. Is he really? Yeah. Okay that that actually would make a lot of sense because I always wondered like you know what the fuck he was doing in like their draft room <laughs> like every year. <laughs> no, I I believe he is. I can fact okay. check myself, but feel free to talk about this situation here while I look this up. Oh, for sure. Um. It's a little bit different because, you know, living in Georgia, I don't think you really hear a lot about um, Arthur Blank talking about, like you said, actual play on the field, um, which is kind of unique, um, which I I think it needs to be a unique situation because Lamar Jackson is an absolute freak of nature, you know, complete unique talent. But I, you know, Blank is obviously he's bringing up valid points um, that we all know. He's missed some games over the last two years, especially come playoff time, which is never good. But I, I don't know. I think if you're the Falcons right now, Lamar still would be an awesome pickup to have. Yeah, I, I certainly think he is an option. And the thing is, is if he does come here, he's not going to be relied on in the run game like he was with the Ravens. We already have a run game, and we have receivers. We have a fantastic tight end that certainly fills the role of what he had with Mark Andrews as long as Kyle Pitts is healthy. And I really do think this is certainly a better place for Lamar than Baltimore 
in my mind. Maybe I'm biased, but I think the offense is set up a little bit more in his favor. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, definitely has has them beaten receivers there. I I think you're selling the Ravens running backs a little bit short. I like the kind of combination of Kenyon Drake, Gus Edwards, um, and I think they also have uh, the dude who used to play for Carolina, Mike Davis, right? And he a well, Raven. J.K. Dobbins is he? Yeah, and J.K. Dobbins. Totally forgot about him. I personally, I would say that the Ravens running backs are better than the Falcons running backs, but if. Lamar can kind of, you know, focus a little bit more on his passing game, which if he went to Atlanta, we'd probably see more of because they have more targets. I think, you know, like you said, he would probably flourish in an Atlanta style where he wouldn't have to run the ball as much. But with how effective Lamar can be in the run, you cannot completely take that away from him. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying we're going to make him into like Andrew Luck, but I feel like he certainly has the – ability to he can still make the runs that kind of come from nowhere and he'll certainly still have design runs probably a lot more option plays with Algier and Patterson in the backfield because they're especially Patterson is a lot more about he he's strong at the line but he has breakaway speed and I think that that works very well with an option so uh, and of course Lamar has the speed so that would be something interesting that we could you know, implementing this playbook, you obviously have the option for like an RPO style offense where maybe Lamar keeps it and or, you know, hit Drake London on a cut. Like there's so many possibilities here with this offense because it adds receivers to Lamar Jackson's game. I, I like that take. And I, I think the Falcons should definitely be pushing for him, especially with how they handled Deshaun Watson last year. But according to Arthur Blank, it's very different. I, I personally don't see how it's very different but you know that's Arthur Blank I'm not Arthur Blank <laughs> excuse me I'm not Arthur Blank but it's true definitely if I'm if I'm the Falcons owner you know GM or whatever Lamar is someone that I would definitely at least want to be the front runner for yeah I, I certainly agree uh Asante Samuel Sr. took to Twitter uh, obviously former NFL player uh, two-time Super Bowl winner I believe and father of Asante Samuel Jr. on the Chargers. He took to Twitter and said, Lamar Jackson, my brother, trust me, you don't want to play for Belichick. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard a player, like, come out and just be, like, against playing for Bill Belichick. Asante Samuel Jr. Sr. spent multiple years in New England, went to Super Bowls, won Super Bowls there, and is like, you don't want to play for Bill Belichick. Do you think it's more of like he's looking out for Lamar, not really shitting on Belichick, or you think he's like absolutely you just don't don't want to play for Belichick at all? I think this is like a uh, maybe like a a backhanded way of taking a taking a shot at Lamar's character. Okay, I didn't even think of it that way. Because look, Bill Belichick playing for him is not for everyone. He's a cutthroat kind of guy. Everything with him is cut and dry. There's no emotions involved. He wants to coach a football team. He wants you to play football. If you're doing anything other than playing football, he's going to have a problem. Yeah. um, The word should have gotten to Juju, I think. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I I think Lamar could play under Belichick. I think Lamar could play for anybody. 
But I think he can play for Belichick personally. But hey, I'm not a Sante Samuel Jr. or senior, kind of like I'm not Arthur Blank. But interesting yeah. comment here. I'm glad that you keep reminding yourself that you're not other people and you are you. <laughs> Normal Luke. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, let's talk about the 49ers. Uh, some interesting stuff coming out. So Shanahan was asked about trading Brock Purdy or Trey Lance. He said, we'll listen to anything. We'll listen if someone wants to trade for John Lynch. We'll listen if somebody wants to trade for me. I'm sure John Lynch will listen. We'll listen on anything. This is, okay, this is Kyle Shanahan being like a little dickhead. (laughs) You think so? Yeah, like... Of course he's not going to fucking answer that question correct. Like he's not going to be like, "Yeah, we're totally going to trade Trey when the season starts." Like that he's not going to say that. Yeah. I mean, it's always like a it, it's not like we're going to do it, you know. Oh, well, we're, you know, we're going to keep an open mind kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's just kind of deflecting the question by being funny, which I appreciate. I think Kyle Shanahan plays an interesting role in the NFL when it comes to personalities of head coaches. Because, like, young guy kind of just grew up as a coach with his dad being a a fantastic NFL coach. And he just actually has a personality. And I think it plays extremely well with the teams he coaches and just kind of the way that we see him in the light of the media. Yeah, and God forbid you don't want to play nickel anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Because you'll end up on a different team and being told you want to ride the bench. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But another interesting thing here about Brock Purdy, obviously the 49ers, you know, I'd, I'd say he's their starting quarterback if he's healthy. He doesn't count against their salary cap. Brock Purdy's salary cap hit of 889,000 is the 52nd highest on the team. And by NFL rules, only the top 51 cap hits actually count against the cap in the offseason. Interesting. I, I, and it's 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 things like this that allows you to bring in Javon Hargrave to a defense that's already fucking like Super Bowl caliber. <laughs> yeah. Like, we, you never would have heard about this. Never. never. Nobody's starting quarterback is getting paid so little that they don't even hit the cap. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's what you just, you know, you get with the Mr. Overlevant picks. But the, the 49ers really, I mean, they need to take advantage of this, which, I mean, they already kind of have with picking up Javon Hargrave. But this is pretty good. You know, just don't end up like the Chargers and, you know, forget to pay him. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a fantastic point. But I also think that this plays into his trade value because if you trade him off as the 49ers, unless you're getting picks, you're – essentially taking on more money, no matter what. Obviously, you could get pretty good value out of Brock Purdy, especially if he plays a little bit more. But when it comes to, you know, the cap and just, you know, monetary parts of this whole franchise, trading Purdy doesn't make sense. Yeah, um... It's kind of one of those things where if you were to trade Brock Purdy, you you could probably get a player that is making I don't I would say twenty million dollars a year for a player like Brock Purdy, and a lot of teams I think you know would give up um, 
a, a player of that caliber for Brock Purdy, you know, a quarterback to start your team off. But the 49ers probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they would give Brock Purdy up for somebody that player wise worth it, but also monetarily, absolutely not. Kind of thing. Yeah. All right. I didn't think we'd have to keep talking about fields and turf and all of this, but uh, a new surface has been installed at MetLife Stadium. Obviously, the Giants and Jets home is now going to be played on field turf core system, which is the first multi-layer dual polymer monofilament fiber. The heavyweight infill design is supposed to deliver a, in quotes, lower incidence of total injuries. Okay. What the fuck does any of that mean? Like, what does that do for me as somebody that takes in NFL news and talks about it? I'm not looking this shit up. I don't give a fuck what they're playing on. If it's turf, it's bad. If it's grass, it's good. That's where I sit. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you, actually, on that. Um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's just a lot of bullshit and, you know, big words, but your players' knees rely on this kind of turf, man. Yeah, and so, you know, if it really does lower the injuries, maybe we see this field turf core system put in in every turf stadium. But is this lower incidence of total injuries compared to other turf, or is this compared to all um, all playing surfaces? Because it, obviously, if it's if people aren't getting injured compared to how they get injured on grass... You know, maybe it is something to look into, but if they're saying it's a lower incidence of total injuries and that's compared to you know, whatever the fuck they had in the ground there before, which was horrible, then duh. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, man, all this, all this grass talk, man, maybe we should, maybe we need a different profession. Maybe we should go cut grass or something. Fuck it. I'm like dropping I'm out of school. To be, I'm dropping out of school to become a landscaper. <laughs> Oh, man, that I mean, shit. The Chiefs landscaper, uh, he makes a fuck ton of money. I'm sure the one that the one that they just fired, uh, he made like a ridiculous salary, and he's just like a field expert. Weird, very weird. Hey, you know, this is grass. And then one more thing: Giants co-owner John Mara was asked about Coach Brian Dable, and before I even say this. Why the fuck are you saying shit like this? So he said right now he's Bono walking around New York City. But it doesn't take long to go from Bono to Bozo. Wow. First of all, kind of an insult to your head coach. And I guess this is like, oh, I'm going to like this will light a fire under his ass. Brian Dable lives with a fire lit under his ass. (laughs) He's on fire. His ass is on fire right now. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sure he has heartburn too. He doesn't need anything else burning around him. But also, why Bono? Uh, okay, look, I'm 20 years old. I don't intake a lot of older music. I have seen pictures of Bono. If I saw him walking around, I'd be like, that's a cool looking old dude. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be like, oh my God, that's Bono. Oh, man. You... This is just such a this is an insult to a guy who deserves the complete opposite. Uh, I mean that's a 
I, I think, you know, Dable is the, is a, the catalyst of a complete culture change uh, in New York. And you can't be saying shit like this, man. You really can't. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> I John, I feel like John Merritt had somebody else write this for him. Why is that? Because he obviously used Bono because of the bozo comment. Like, <laughs> That's yeah. the only reason he's using those words. Somebody certainly wrote, they were like, if you get asked about Coach Dable, you have to say this. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Dable is a coach that he needs to be respected a lot more, and hopefully he's around for a while. Yeah, certainly. All right, Luke, before we get into some draft talk, I want to ask you a question real quick. And, and this kind of just has to sum up all of this free agency stuff we've seen which teams got worse since the season ended? That's a good question. I've got the, two in the mind. First, I, yeah, the first two that come to mind, um, and this is, you know, I haven't even read this NFL news. This is just, you know, first reaction, Eagles-Bengals. Okay. Bengals, obviously, they, they didn't get that offensive lineman, but I, I from to my knowledge, they have yet to address Jesse Bates or Von Bell, and in a passing league, you're going to be fucked. Yeah, so I'm in the same boat with the Bengals. But okay. the other team that I think significantly got worse is the Saints. They, you know, picked up a couple guys here and there, but they have not addressed how many guys they let leave. Yeah, and it feels like all to Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, and Did Carolina. Did they have two guys leave to Atlanta? Yeah, they had two guys go to Atlanta. I think two or three guys went to the Carolina. So in the division, too. Yeah, they're going to have to see those guys twice a year. But the Saints is a very good one. Um, they, they obviously uh, they got Derek Carr quarterback, which is phenomenal. Um, but, yeah, their defense just kind of got picked apart in free agency. Yeah, it's uh, – I think – I, I kind of agree with you on the Eagles thing. But for them, in the place that they were at, it was going to be very hard for them to get much worse – and they actually avoided it pretty well. They kept Slay. They kept Bradbury. Um, they kept a couple of other guys. And I think it kind of keeps the core there. They don't need Miles Sanders. And they don't need Javon Hargrave, per se. They have guys that fill these roles. And I, I wouldn't say they got worse. But they certainly did a good job of avoiding that. I, I would say, yeah, they... In my opinion, they did get worse, but they did a really good job of lessening the effect. But I'm also thinking that they lost um, their offensive and defensive coordinator as well. Yeah, that is certainly where they got worse. Uh, obviously, you know, there's no telling how well the guys that fill in are going to be. But yeah, that that is a big part that I think a lot of people overlook. Uh, and I certainly did is the fact that, you know, even if you're a very successful team, you can certainly get worse and not lose any players. If you're losing your coordinators and your, you know, your assistant coaches, it's gonna be a problem. I, especially, I feel like coming off of a Super Bowl, um, it would have been nice to keep those guys in there. You know, the guys that are fresh off of a Super Bowl are coming back to their same team, but it's kind of like an entire reset. So we'll we'll have to see with the Eagles. Obviously, they're still gonna be good. But in, in my opinion, they are a team that was heavily affected in a negative way by this offseason so far. Yeah. All right. Let's get into a little bit of draft talk, and then we'll get into our top inside linebackers of last season. Panthers coach Frank Reich told Stephen Holder, who should we pick? 
Um, Stephen Holder told him, I think you're taking the guy who looks like the prototype quarterback, which obviously inferring C.J. Stroud, uh, Stephen Holder went on to say that uh, Frank Reich did not try to talk him out of it. I think at this point it's very obvious where the Panthers are going with this first pick. Um, C.J. Stroud is the prototype quarterback in this draft, especially when it comes to what we've already seen from his sample size and what we've seen in the combine and his pro days. Like it appears that he's also doing really well in these meetings. So CJ Stroud is the guy and he's almost certainly going number one. He, he definitely needs to be the guy that goes number one. And if you need an example, look at the Georgia game on New Year's Eve. No quarterback was able to do anything like that against the Georgia defense. NFL defenses, and we're talking about like bottom of the league NFL defenses, are going to be the Georgia defense on steroids. C.J. Stroud is 100% the best quarterback in this draft class. And if the Panthers take anybody other than him, you can go ahead and just kiss your uh, Bears trade. as a Just chalk it up as a complete wash. <laughs> if they don't take C.J. Stroud, in my opinion. Yeah. He is like... By far the obvious choice, and I am honestly super passionate about it. If they take Anthony Richardson, this team has completely fucked themselves. Maybe even worse than the Broncos. Actually, no, not worse than the Broncos, but they're up there with the Broncos. All right. Let's talk about Jalen Carter because some interesting things have developed. Um, Dan Campbell was asked about Jalen Carter. He said that we talked to a teammate of his the other day, and man, he told us some things we didn't know that probably that nobody probably would have known. It was like, oh, that's interesting. And when asked if it was good or bad, he said, it's interesting. So looks like the Lions are probably out. But the reports came out just a couple of hours ago. The Raiders will not consider Jalen Carter in the draft. Dang, so he is starting to slip. But this is becoming a reality now. Yeah, and it seems like we really haven't gotten a full reason. Obviously, the Raiders need to avoid controversy at all costs um, with everything that's gone on with that one, primarily Henry Ruggs. But look, I, I think it's crazy to write him off right now. Obviously, you know, the case, it's already done. You know, he pled no contest. Um he will face the relatively small consequences that he has, and they can't bring him any more charges uh, from that incident. So that is kind of done and dusted. If there's something else that happened, sure, I, I certainly would consider it, but it, it's weird that we haven't heard anything new develop with him, except for that people are just pulling out on him. Yeah, I, I really don't know how to feel about what Dan Campbell said, though. Because, I, I mean, obviously, from that quote, it's not good. Whatever they heard, it's not good. Um, or at least I, from what I'm gaining from this, uh, I wonder what teammate they talked to. Yeah, that's, I, I wonder, that's or, what I want to know. Is it a current teammate or it's someone who's already in the NFL? Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, are any of his teammates from Georgia – I don't think DeAndre the Swift played with Jalen Carter. That's no, the first I one so. I can think of. Um, did, did they draft one of the defensive players? I mean, they, they took Aiden Hutchinson, but he was Michigan. 
Yeah, but I feel like maybe they did. I don't know. But uh, either way, it it seems very weird that we haven't gotten a report on whatever this thing is outside of what Dan Campbell said. Yeah, I think um, a lot of teams, it just kind of seems like they're maybe either they're um, taking to the media to say that they're, you know, pulling out and they're not, you know, they're not interested in Jalen Carter anymore or, or they're just not saying anything because it's like kind of a touchy topic right now. And that's also not a good sign. You know, you, I feel like you want a guy or you want a team to come out and be like, you know, we understand that what he did was, you know, not very good. Of course, it, it is kind of minor what Jalen Carter did in that whole situation, but it, it's still not good. It's not a good look at all. But you want a team to come out and be like, look, he's a talent. We've talked to him. He seems like he's learned from, you know, his previous mistake. And, you know, we're all in for him. But nobody has said that, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's crazy how much we're like with a lot of players. We hear a lot, you know, in the draft conversations of like, yeah, we talked to the kid like we really like what he's doing. Like nobody has had good things to say about Jalen Carter since this incident happened yeah and i you know i was talking about this with one of my friends um actually earlier today he's the kind of talent that you know before recording this podcast he d- d- should not have fallen out of the first round probably at least you know at least stay in the top 15 he's that talented but you know as this has kind of progressed and hearing about what dan campbell said here are, are we looking at, like, second round for Jalen Carter, Grayson? I, I don't know, man. There, there's going to be somebody, especially if he drops, like, mid-first, that is going to be interested enough to sh- to draft him. I, I, I want to think that, but from what teams have said and from, honestly, what teams have not said, I there's nothing I can really, like, go off of except for how much of a beast he is. So, I, I don't know, really interesting to see how this will end up on draft night. Yeah, it, it's certainly going to be a development. So, let's talk about the Seahawks. Uh, supposedly, they have legitimate interest in the top quarterback prospects in this draft. Uh, that's why the owner let Pete Carroll and John Snyder borrow her plane so they could go to each major pro day last week. Obviously, um, today, as we're recording Thursday, um they were at the University of Florida's to see Anthony Richardson. And he's got uh, – Richardson himself has a ton of visits um, to deal with after his pro day. So he's probably still meeting with these teams. But the Panthers, Colts, Titans, Falcons, Ravens, Raiders, and now the Seahawks uh, are all on his plate today. How do you feel about the Seahawks' interest in a quarterback here? Well, you've already talked about it on the podcast, and I, I'm 100% in the same boat as you. Anthony Richardson with the Seahawks is a million percent his best option. He, he either needs to go to the Seahawks or needs to go to a team like the Seahawks where their current starting quarterback maybe isn't going to be the guy for the future. Who He's a guy who's going to be willing to like train Anthony Richardson, which Geno said that whoever they draft, he wants to help them out. And, you know, you've talked about it with Anthony Richardson. He – freak athlete just looking at his body but the dude is definitely going to have to be taught some things if he goes anywhere well he'll he'll be a day one starter i honestly would go as far as to say you can kiss his entire career goodbye 
because that first, you know, couple games would completely set the tone. But if he can sit behind, you know, keep working out, keep learning, keep studying, this could be a pretty fucking dangerous kid in the NFL. Yeah, certainly. I've, you know, gotten extremely high on Anthony Richardson in the past, you know, month, but I I truly do believe in his ability to grow once he reaches the NFL, but he needs time. Obviously, the big thing with him coming out of college was that he probably should have stayed another year. He's really only started a year and a half of of college football, and I, I don't think he's quite ready from that standpoint. Obviously, he felt that he was ready, and the people around him thought he was ready, and he, look, he is an extremely enticing prospect. It's just interesting to see, especially looking at mock drafts. I've seen him all over the board in different yeah. places. Yeah, we have a really entertaining draft coming up. Like with all the Jalen Carter shit and Anthony Richardson, like you just said, mock drafts have not really um have not really said the same thing about him. I, I've seen him going as far as the being the first damn pick in this draft. I've seen him going all the way to like the teens. So really, really excited to see how this is going to play out. But like I said, I, I do agree with you, Grace. And the Seahawks is like by far the best team he could go to. And another you know, reason for that that I didn't mention earlier is Pete Carroll would be a fantastic head coach to play under as a young quarterback. I mean, that's the kind of guy you want to be taught by. Yeah, certainly. And then also at Florida's Pro Day, uh, offensive lineman Osiris Torrance, uh, he met with a couple of teams, uh, including the Titans, Rams, Falcons, and Saints. It looks like he's got a shot to go in the first round. There is a decent amount of offensive lineman talent in the first round, so he could slip into the second. That's why I think that you see the Falcons and Rams talking to him. But you know, the Saints, with a late first, could certainly snatch him up. Yeah, I think uh, the Saints would do good drafting an offensive lineman here. Yeah. All right, Luke. You ready to get into this linebackers list? Let's do it, man. I'm excited. All right, me and Luke agreed before the episode. This was probably the hardest list to make of all. Yeah. Because there's so many different things that you could go by, and it made this extremely difficult. But without further ado, let's get into it. Luke, I'm going to start it off this time. Thank you. Let's hear it. Number 10, I've got Dre Greenlaw. And I feel like I could be underrating him here. I could be overrating him here. But as a converted safety, he's got speed and range in the coverage that... extremely helpful to his game and it really complements this front seven they have in San Francisco deep coverage running back coverage he can mark a tight end it doesn't really matter he can kind of do it all and he doesn't quite he's not quite on the level of Fred Warner who stands next to him but he certainly plays off of Fred Warner Dre Greenlaw had 127 total tackles 82 solo and picked up an interception this season he looks exactly like what like, I couldn't ask for a better second best linebacker on my team. I was just about to say, he's a fantastic compliment. You know, you got Fred Warner that kind of does it all. And Greenlaw is sort of your, you know, get dirty kind of guy. And Greenlaw actually has more tackles than Fred Warner on the year. I'm pretty sure. Yes, too, so. he does. You know, a great compliment to Fred Warner there, but I, that was the guy who didn't make my list. So very, we're going to have very different lists. I'm excited. Um, my number 10, I went with C.J. Mosley. 
This is a guy that I've kind of kept up with for a while. Um, of course, whenever he played in Baltimore, I had to keep up with him because he was, you know, killing the Steelers almost every single time the Steelers and Ravens would play. But CJ Mosley, 99 tackles on the year, uh, and I did solo tackles again. Um, five passes defended, one sack, one pick, one fumble recovery. And, I, you know, this is a guy who's been with the Jets for a little while now. Um, and, and I think he's kind of, you know, one of those guys that – He's another big reason for this culture change uh, in New York for the Jets. Of course, you know, they also have guys. Um, oh, my God. Who's the D tackle? I'm completely. Quinn and Williams. Quinn and Williams. Thank you. I mean, guys like that that are going to change the culture. But CJ Mosley, you know, he's he's I want to say he's the captain of the defense. He's your veteran there. I, I like CJ Mosley at my number 10. All right. My number nine. I've got TJ Edwards of the Eagles. Uh, solid season but his stats kind of tell the story 159 total tackles 99 solo he really leads you know his game is led by his intelligence he's not like this super physical player he doesn't have like a perfect build but he always knows what he's supposed to do and he plays his role perfectly he goes he goes into a lot of running back coverage plays over the middle a little bit of rushing here and there and all around consistency is tj edwards calling card I, I like that pick. He was also also seventh in tackles. Nice little top ten finish there. In um, tackles for a loss too. Super solid player there. I like that take. Um, this okay. My number nine is where I put uh, Bobby uh, Okariki. This dude, absolute underrated dog. Ninety nine tackles on the year. Actually tied with CJ Mosley for tenth place. Um, two forced fumbles. Two fumbles recovered massive massive jump this is his second season in the league he i mean compared to last season he is he's just absolutely flying it's all it's all up from here for this guy and i'm gonna make a little hot take here grayson bobby okariki is a better pickup for the giants than darren waller Ooh, i like that that is my hot take this dude is i I love this guy I, i was so happy that i got to put him on my top 10 list because he just looked really good with the Colts. Filled in for uh, Shaq Leonard. Of course, that was kind of a joint effort from uh, him and Zaire Franklin, who also made my list. But solid guy. And, yeah, like I said, I think he's he's a better pickup than Waller for the Giants. So, Bobby Okereke, my number nine. All right. My number eight. I've got Foyasada Luicon. And I feel like I'm kind of underrating him here because the guy's an absolute tackle machine. 184 total tackles, 128 solo. Ridiculous numbers here. The problem for me is that a lot of these tackles he gets is because his coverage is not very good. There's no doubt, obviously, that he is one of the best in the game. But if his coverage was better, I kind of expect the tackle numbers to decrease, and he kind of levels out there. The rest of the stats being two sacks, 18 and a half stuffs, two forced fumbles, two fumble, two fumble recoveries. It's huge. He he is fantastic. I think the coverage just holds him back a little bit too much for me. Okay, he made my list much higher, but I, I wanted to put him higher, but like you, um, because of how he defends in the air, he also kind of slipped on my list. But yeah, Luicon, man, give some guy... I, I'm going to give him my respect whenever we get to him. But anyway, um, number eight, I went with Matt Milano. A really solid player for the Bills. Always kind of overlooked, in my opinion, but this dude... 72 tackles, one and a half sacks, and three interceptions. And kind of, I forget who you said on your list um, also did this, but 
Matt Milano is also converted from a safety. He did that at Boston College. And I would honestly say that Matt Milano is your best coverage middle linebacker in the NFL. So he made my number eight. All right. My number seven is CJ Mosley. I, I think that now, like, he's 30 years old now. He's, you know, officially a, a getting to the veteran status in this league. He is just an all around beast at the position. He swallows up ball carriers and he can also lock you down in short coverage. 158 total tackles, 99 solo, one interception, two passes defended, nine and a half stuffs, got himself, um, I believe he forced a fumble as well. CJ Mosley is unbelievably good, especially at this stage in his career, because he's kind of getting past that athletic prime and certainly still is a physical presence on the field. And that perfectly segues into my number seven, also a guy who's out of his athletic prime, but still just one of the best middle linebackers in the game. And that's Levante David with the Buccaneers. Uh, 80 tackles on the year, three sacks, one forced fumble. I would put him up there with one of the smartest middle linebackers in my lifetime. Uh, Seriously, I think the world of this guy, 33 years old, but still had a huge season in 2022 and proved that he can still play in the league after kind of down years in 2020 and 2021. And yeah, he can still hold his own in the league and the Bucks did very good to keep him in the free agency. Uh, that would have sucked for them if they lost uh, Levante David, but yeah, Levante David, man, my number seven. All right. My number six, I've got Matt Milano here. Uh, he only started playing linebacker in college after converting from safety. So that's kind of why his coverage is so top tier, but he's formed into a great run stopper as well. So he's strong enough to push past a running back, enough skill and agility to beat an offensive lineman. This guy really is a complete package. Uh, If the rushing, you know, if like the sack numbers went up a little bit and the tackling number went up a little bit, he'd certainly be like a top five, top three guy. Um, I just need to see a little bit more in a bigger light because I think you had a good point. Like he gets overlooked a lot. He got a ton of attention in the second half of the season. And I think it only helped him out. For sure. And I, I hope we get to see a lot of him uh, now that Tremaine Edmonds is gone too. He'll have to step it up in the run game and, uh, you know, do even more in the pass game. So Matt Milano could be poised for an awesome 2023. So I like that at number six. Um, number six for me. This is where I had Zaire Franklin, a dude who, like, could not be further off of my radar. I never knew who this guy was until last season. He had 104 solo tackles. That put him at fourth in the league, three sacks, three forced fumbles, and kind of like the uh, uh, Bobby Okereke, who played with the Colts last year uh, as well, they they both had to do such a insane job to step up for Shaq Leonard being gone because Shaquille Leonard is a premier linebacker in this league, but obviously his back injury kept him out for pretty sure all of 2020. He may have gotten some downs and some reps, but could never stay on the field. And I just kind of wanted to highlight that the Colts last season, Bobby uh, Okereke, uh, number 10 in tackles of last year, and like I said, Zaire Franklin at number four. So they had two guys in the top 10, which I thought was really impressive. Anyway, Zaire Franklin, my number six, super solid linebacker. All right. My number five, Bobby Wagner. Like, what a year for a veteran linebacker. At 32, still keeping up with the big boys, laying the huge hits, stopping the run. The coverage is still certainly there. The guy is just 
so much fun to watch still, and he's going back to Seattle. I, I absolutely love it. 140 total tackles, 81 solo, six sacks, Hunter, sorry, 16.5 stuffs, two interceptions, and just for fun, he blocked a kick. Huh. I like it. Um, were you done with your number five? Yeah. Awesome. That leads me into my number five, who is also Bobby Wagner. Um, and I, I mean, I don't really have much to add except for you. It was just, it's really impressive to me when guys can go to different teams and immediately, immediately set the tone for themselves there and just play like nothing ever happened. Bobby Wagner is aging like fine wine in this league. And I, he'll be even better with the Seahawks, especially with the Seahawks, like entire new team. Oh, they're going to be so dangerous next year. But yeah, Bobby Wagner at number five. I, I love meeting Bobby Wagner. All right. Number four, I've got Roquan Smith and it's finally looking like it was money well spent for the Ravens. Like he's in, he's just got elite ability uh, at getting pass blockers uh, or getting through pass blockers, um, finding the ball carrier, stopping the runs early and don't let the run stop fool you because his coverage is solid as well. He had 103 total tackles, four and a half sacks, 18 and a half stuffs, but on top of it, three interceptions and three passes defended. I like, oh man, too low, Grayson, too low. Really? <laughs> I think so. Actually, no. Uh, okay, I agree with you because I completely overrated a guy here. Okay, um, I, I'm excited to get to it. I may have overrated this guy, but I, I like I like this at my number four. This is where I put a Lewicon. Um Obviously, you already highlighted it. His one tw- 128 tackles is solo tackles is the most in the league two sacks and two forced fumbles but what kicked him out of the top three for me even though he was the tackle leader was his pass coverage which we already kind of highlighted but at the reason i have him all the way at number four still is because his 128 solo tackles was 20 more than second place and then it's from second to third is five tackles. Aluakon by far, by far, I, I would go as far as to say is the league's best raw tackler, and he never gets enough credit. And to kind of add to the never gets enough credit, this is the second year in a row that he is our NFL tackle leader at the end of the season because he also did it with the Falcons last year. So put some respect on Aluakon's name. He was my number four. All right. And so this is where I entirely overrated somebody. I've got Levante David at three. Okay. He is the ideal veteran linebacker. Like, when it comes down to it, and, like, the last two seasons, like you said, they were pretty much, they were down years, for sure. He bounced back this year so well. It seemed like the last two years, he kind of, lost a huge part of his game, which was his physicality. This year, he came out firing. It seemed like he had just a second life and showed off the range and coverage as well. He looked fantastic all season. Really, one of the few bright spots of this Buccaneers team all season. 124 total tackles, three sacks, 10.5 stuffs. He forced a fumble and recovered one as well. Levante David is still 100% a premier linebacker in this league, even though he is getting up there in age. 
Yeah, I just think the partnership of Levante David with Devin White Grayson, just so fucking unfair. And I guarantee you that's a lot of the reason why Levante David is able to play at this kind of level is he can kind of let Devin White do all the physical stuff and Levante David can just kind of be the brain and like the pass guy. I think seriously, Devin White has added careers to Levante David. Or not added careers, added years, sorry. Yeah, I certainly agree. Yes. Um, My number three, I went with another guy who I feel like gets overlooked a lot, but this dude, Nick Bolton from the Chiefs, he's a, he can fucking play. Second in tackles last year with 108 solo, two sacks, one forced fumble, two interceptions. He also had 41 interception yards, which is pretty high among linebackers on this list. Um, He, you know, like I said, he's an awesome player on this Chiefs defense, and I don't think, you know, I, I guess this is kind of more of a broader statement, but I don't think a lot of the guys that are absolute dogs, um, like Karlaftis and even Chris Jones, anybody on this Chiefs defense that's a dog, they just kind of get looked over by the high-powered offense. But Nick Bolton is someone that you can't look over, and he made my number three. So he's a guy that actually didn't make my list. He was a guy that I certainly contemplated putting on here, but... At number two, I have Demario Davis, a guy that I think is extremely overlooked and extremely underrated. He is the perfect combination of pass coverage and blitzing ability. Uh, You know, the Saints weren't fantastic this year, but Demario Davis is such a force because the numbers aren't really there for him because he is so great in coverage that nobody dares to throw down the middle on him. He had 109 total tackles, six and a half sacks, 10 stuffs, an interception, and a fumble recovery. He does it all over the place, and he's just really not getting the credit he deserves. I love that. I I think I've said it on – I've definitely told you this. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but Mario Davis, by far one of my favorite non-Steelers players. Um, He's another, you know, like you said, another Levante David that's getting up there in age, but – it's just kind of a testament to them of how they can, you know, alter their game so they're not having to be as physical and not having to just, you know, run down guys as much. They're playing more with their minds. And I think that's, you know, a great testament to how good of a player that Levante David and Demario Davis can be. But yeah, Demario Davis, dude, what a fucking player he is. Um, all right. So we are down to our top two, right? Well, that was my number two. Okay. So I get to do my number two. My number two, Grayson, I'm already smiling. I'm already getting the giggles. It's Fred Warner. Didn't make what? my number one. Oh, you, actually, you definitely pulled some bullshit on me. It's fine. No, Go ahead. No, 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 no. But anyway, Fred Warner, 79 tackles, two sacks, one forced fumble, one interception. And, of course, I think they play a 3-4 defense in which there are two interior linebackers, kind of like the Buccaneers and the Steelers. So obviously the stats really aren't there for Fred Warner. They're pretty damn good, but they're not like ridiculous. Um, And obviously this dude, he's definitely the best player on the 49ers defense by far. One of the best players in the whole NFL, 10 passes defended. I mean, just stupid, you know, stats that middle linebackers just shouldn't have in my opinion, but I just wanted to highlight this play again. The play versus C.D. Lamb or Fred Warner on the line of scrimmage, just as soon as Dak said hut, just took off running and covered and got a pass defense against C.D. Lamb on a streak. Unfucking believable that a linebacker did that. So, 
Yeah, Fred Warner made my number two, but I, I can't wait to get to my number one. Okay, well, he is my number one because the guy's just a fucking animal. You're, you're right. There is not a linebacker in this league that has the jump of Fred Warner. As soon as that ball snaps, he is gone, and he knows exactly where he's got to be. He reads the defense possibly the best in the NFL. The coverage is fantastic. He can push up at the quarterback. He can push up, stop the run. He can do it all, and he does it better than anyone. Okay. Um, well, in my opinion, not better than this guy. My number one is where I put Roquan Smith. I Honestly, I can't believe you had him at number four. But I, I respect it. I respect it. Roquan Smith, 103 solo tackles, had him at third in the NFL. He also had 11 uh, tackles for losses, which is pretty high among my list. Four and a half sacks three interceptions, and what I want to highlight here is how good Baltimore's defense was um, at the end of last season without Lamar Jackson. I don't actually have the stats in front of me, but, like, for it felt like must have been four or five games in a row, they were only giving up, like, two touchdowns and a field goal while Lamar was gone. And I think a lot of that is because of this Roquan Smith trade. They gave him his money, which he absolutely deserves. They gave him a lot of years, which he absolutely deserves. And I also wanted to highlight this. In his first game in the Steelers versus Ravens rivalry, he completely crushed my fucking dreams because he had a red zone interception against Trubisky. And the reason that Trubisky was in the game is because uh, Roquan Smith sacked him and took Kenny Pickett out of the game because of concussion protocol. So if there's any way to, you know, staple your name in that rivalry, it's that's that's how you do it. It's how Roquan Smith did it. So he made my number one. This guy is an animal. All right. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to be honest. I thought you were going to pull some bullshit and just take Micah Parsons because of how well he plays off the line as well. <laughs> um, I can respect Roquan. Okay, I, I got you. Why did you have him at four? I, I want to know how he slipped on your list. So oh. with Roquan, it seems like, like, okay, he does a lot of things right, but I feel like he could be better at those things. Like, he could be better in coverage. Like, he's great at coverage. Don't get me wrong. But I think he could spread the field a little bit better because a majority of his coverage is directly over the middle. I feel like he's not leaking outside enough. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's talk about opening day. Oh, what? this is, dude, I'm what so an opening day. Excited. So fucking excited. Okay, so we'll get it started. First hit of the season. Goes to Ronald Acuna. First stolen base of the season goes to Ronald Acuna. First home run of the season goes to Aaron Judge. A, a blast. Absolute blast. 422, dead center. You Ooh. can't see me right now, but I am rising. Good. <laughs> Just a, a fantastic day up and down. So um, we obviously had Braves win it over the Nationals 7-2. Yankees get the win over the... Giants 5-0. Baltimore and Boston play a real close one. Baltimore gets it 10-9 after the the Red Sox really tried to come back. They were down 10-5 going into the bottom of the eighth, put up three, put up two in the bottom of the ninth, and really pushed them. But the Orioles come out with the win. Chicago gets the win over the Brewers, or sorry, the Cubs get the win over the Brewers 4-0 off of one inning of scoring. Just one, bottom of the third, they put up four, and that was it. 
And then Tampa gets the win over Detroit. Not a surprise whatsoever. Shane McClanahan picks up his first win of the season. And probably one of the best games of the day, Philadelphia versus Texas. Texas takes it 11-7 to after DeGrom came out and pitched like shit. He gave up six extra base hits. I believe it was three doubles, two triples, and a home run uh, in the first three innings. Big statement from the Phillies there. Um, I was actually watching that game live, and I just, I, I really just couldn't believe it. Um, Degrom with his new team didn't didn't make a good impression. They yeah. still got the win at least. They certainly did get the win off of nine runs in the bottom of the fourth. They followed up with two more runs in the bottom of the fifth. They take an eleven to six lead there, and the Phillies really just couldn't put anything together in the last four. They did put up one run on the board in the seventh. It ends 11-7. to This is a big statement by the Rangers' offense because I feel like there was definitely questions surrounding this offense. They didn't really add much in the offseason. They stuck with the guys that they signed long-term last year with uh, Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. Nate Lowe had a decent game. Uh, Adolis Garcia, two for four um, with two RBIs. A solid game out of him. And Jonah Heim behind the plate, who was stellar last year, got himself two hits and two RBIs as well. This Rangers lineup is actually pretty damn good. Like, Brad Miller is certainly not the guy he was, uh, especially with the Phillies. He played a good role there. But one for four, got himself two RBIs. Robbie Grossman had a great game. He only went one for three. Had three, uh, uh, hit a three-run home run off of Aaron Nola in the fourth inning. This Rangers lineup is actually something to look out for, and I really do think that the Rangers could put something together here. They don't have the best rotation, but if DeGrom is on, Martin Perez is certainly going to be there, and I think this Rangers team is going to be better than what most people probably thought. They Are they a dark horse for you? I wouldn't say they're a dark horse whatsoever. I don't think they're making the playoffs. Their their division's too strong for them to make the playoffs because you know they're going to have to play the Strohs. They're going to have to play the Mariners. It's not going to work out well there. Yeah, but I mean, opening day eleven to seven against the Phillies, uh, especially after you know, I feel like they did a good job recovering from you know Degrom's struggles, which was kind of the story of the game. I think is you know, Degrom is one of the best pitchers probably of all time. And, you know, he's with the new team. And I felt like, you know, with him struggling, it kind of would have rattled the entire team and Philly would have just ran away from it. But the Rangers showed some, you know, resilience against a really good baseball team. And I think you're right. Maybe not a dark horse, but definitely a team to look out for. Yeah, wild. And, like, the Phillies pitching, it it was just so bad. Like, Aaron Nola gets the start. He only goes 3.2, gives up four hits, five runs, five earned only gets four strikeouts, and he gives up the home run. And then Gregory Soto, who has been the closer for the Tigers for, the I think, the last two years, he's been an all-star, comes in, doesn't even record an out, and gives up three earned runs, four runs total, doesn't even have a qualifying ERA because he didn't finish even a third of an inning. He got the loss. Yeah, and then... um uh, I believe it's Connor Brogdon. Yeah, Connor Brogdon comes in and doesn't really do much else. Uh, he does record a full inning of work, but three hits, two runs, two earned. Uh, 
uh, and one home run that puts him at an 18 ERA. Enjoy that one. But <laughs> it's just interesting to see from a team that just made the World Series. And yeah. it's crazy. I mean, they'll, they'll be looking to bounce back for sure. And then Pittsburgh gets the win 5-4 over the Reds. Um, Toronto wins a thriller in St. Louis, uh, 10-9. Toronto opened it up three runs in the first. St. Louis answered with one run in the bottom of the first, and then Toronto kept it going. They go up 4-1 going into the third. St. Louis brings it back to 4-3, and then Toronto makes it a 5-3 game, and then they tie it up at 5 after the fourth. They go into the fifth. Nobody scores. St. Louis takes the lead in the sixth, 6-5. And then in the seventh, Toronto answers. St. Louis answers again. Toronto comes back with two. St. Louis comes back with two. They have a, a one-run lead there. Or, sorry. Um, <clears throat> yes, a one-run a one-run lead. Could not get that one out. And then top of the ninth, Toronto comes up. They put in two more. They take the lead 10-9, and they take the win Jordan Romano gets his first save of the year. What a game. What a game. And, I mean, this this Blue Jays, they've, trust me, as a fan of another ALS team, I, you know, kind of have to keep up with some of those guys. And the Blue Jays have been knocking on the door of the Yankees for, it seems like, two or three years now. And this season, you know, we're going to get into what our predictions will be for the divisions. But the Blue Jays, you know, it, it, I feel like it's now or never. They, they've been lurk, uh, lurking for too long. It, it's time to really take control for them. And, you know, showing the fight against uh, the Cardinals here, they, they, you know, they look pretty good. Yeah, it, it was fantastic. And for the Cardinals, every single player in the starting lineup recorded a hit. That's fantastic stuff. And then Minnesota gets the 2-0 win over the Royals. Not a surprise. Royals suck. Uh, the New York Mets squeak one out against the the Marlins. It was tied up going into the seventh. Mets take the two-run lead after the seventh, and then they just hold throughout. Scherzer had a uh, not a great game here. Um, he ended up going kind of deep here, but uh, ends up giving up the three runs late, but still records six innings pitched, six strikeouts, Um not the typical start we'd see from Scherzer. Typically, he's going to be you know, pretty dominant throughout his start, and then as soon as he falters, they typically pull him. They let him finish the sixth, but a rough one for him. Um, not, not the best look, but, I mean, he's somebody that I'm sure will probably adjust, you know, his second outing. So get the jitters out, you know, opening day, but I would have liked to have seen him play better. Yeah, and, and then for tomorrow's game between Mets and Marlins, Justin Verlander is going to be out. Uh, they put him on the IL with a uh, – I'm trying to remember. It is a low-grade major terrace sprain. Uh, that's the muscle like in your armpit, essentially. Um, wow. He obviously you know pulled that probably just throwing a bullpen in the last couple of days. Uh, with how late we heard this news, because that news came out, I believe, during the first slate of games, so around uh, like 1 o'clock. But, yeah, the tough stuff, because, look, as baseball fans, we want to see Justin Verlander pitch. Yeah, especially coming after a Cy Young at 40 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a fantastic game, or uh, a fantastic pitcher, and 
you know, he'll, his, he should be back soon. It's just, you know, kind of a strain in the muscle. So uh, I don't doubt that he'll come back. And then the White Sox, they get the 3-2 win over the reigning champions, Houston Astros, a, a late sure. win too. Um, this game was flying by. I believe it only took two hours to get through the seventh. Houston took a 1-0 lead after the seventh, and then the White Sox immediately answer in the eighth. They make it a 1-1 game. The White Sox put up two in the top of the ninth. Houston tries to fight back with a home run in the ninth. And then, sorry, I believe it was a home run. I think that was Jordan Alvarez. Um, but it just, you know, was to no avail. The White Sox get the 3-2 win. And let me say, Dylan Cease was absolutely dealing to start this game off. Like, just, oh my God, was it ridiculous. He ended up 6.1, one earned run, 10 strikeouts. But... I believe, yeah, it was three innings, seven strikeouts to start the game. Yeah, I was about to say, I know he had he had a lot early on. Um, I know uh, when I was making my MLB predictions, you know, kind of doing research on players, a lot of people were betting on Dylan Cease to be your uh, AL Cy Young. So, who knows? We'll have to see. Yeah, uh, definitely coming in second last year. Lit a fire under his ass, and now he gets to call his own pitches with that pitch column on his glove. So... It seems like he's really liking that. Uh, as it stands right now, there's a couple of games going on. Uh, Colorado's got a 5-2 lead over the Padres in the bottom of the sixth. The Angels have a 1-0 lead over the Athletics in the top of the sixth. Uh, the Dodgers lead the Diamondbacks 5-2 into the fifth. And Cleveland and Seattle are all tied up at zero to end the sixth. This has been probably one of the most exciting opening days that I've witnessed in a long time. And this is the first time that all 30 teams played on opening day since I believe like the mid seventies. Really? Yeah. So typically it'd be like a couple of teams would play on Thursday and then everybody would play on Friday or, you know, whatever day it starts. They got everybody to start on the same day. And I think it just made for such a fantastic day of baseball and it's going to set up a great weekend. I was about to say, because, like, I just – I thrive in this madness, man. The fact that everybody's playing today, it's it just a full day of baseball, you know, kind of like towards the middle of the week, too. Just so nice. Yeah, it is fan-fucking-tastic. All right, Luke, we made our lists before this happened. Yes. But let's go through our division winners' predictions. I'm going to be honest. I think I have a couple of hot takes here. I think I do too. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get it started with the I'll AL start. East. I will start. Um, first, I got to fucking find it in my, my notes here because I take shit on paper like I'm 50. All right. I'm ready. So, AL East. I went ahead and said the Yankees. Um, But August of 2022, which was last season, the Yankees went 10 and 18 in the month of August. They were averaging 3.6 runs her, which was fourth worst in the AL at the time. But they started last season 40 and 15, which was their best start since 1980 or 1998, in which that year they won the World Series. They were on pace at that time to win 118. Maybe with some of the additions they've made, they will finally have that consistency that they need. Because, I mean, that, that's that's kind of the story of last season. You started 40 and 15, 
And by August, you were a 10 and 18 team in that month. So, you know, you can't be crawling to the finish like the Yankees were last year. But, you know, like I said, maybe with the additions that they've made, they'll finally have a more consistent lineup. All right. Yeah, I've got the Blue Jays coming in first. I think the Blue Jays are going to be a fantastic team this year. The additions they made on top of what they already have that's just been growing over the last couple of years, they look fantastic. I think the Yankees will be a close second. I think it's going to be kind of back and forth throughout the season, but I think the deciding factor here is going to be the the second to last series of the season. These two face off September 26th through 28th. This is when the Blue Jays will probably clinch the division, I think. Uh, I think it'll be kind of similar to where um, at least the close of the season last season for the NL East, where the Braves and Mets got super close. It was very back and forth for about a month, and then the Braves ended up taking a series over the Mets and just completely locked it up there. I like it. I mean, the Blue Jays, it it really, I feel like this one could either, it could go either way, Yankees or Blue Jays, but... I like the Blue Jays pick, you know, as I said earlier, they're a team that's been knocking at the door, but it's finally time for them to bust in, I think. So I I could see them winning the AL East for sure. All right, let's talk about the AL Central. Yeah, so here I have the Guardians. Look, they brought in guys like Josh Bell and Mike Zunino who are going to offer, you know, great options for them. They have MVP candidate Jose Ramirez on their team, plus my AL reliever of the year, um, Emmanuel Classe, who can fucking close a game, let me tell you. I have some fun facts about this division, though, Grayson. For other teams in that division, you have the Twins, right? In 2019, they had 101 wins. In 2020, they won the division again. But in 2021, they came in last. In 2022, they came in third. So... Kind of strange there, but they they have a couple of guys. I want to say they've had they have a couple of young guys like Roy Lewis, 23 years old, tore his ACL in May in 2022, uh, played 12 games. Within those 12 games, he batted 300, had two home runs, five RBIs, and around almost a 900 OPS. Awesome utility player there. You also have Jose uh, Jose Miranda, 24 years old, who's a first baseman. He, uh, I want to say, logged the full year last year, uh, batted 268, 15 home runs, 66 RBI, almost an 800 OPS. Um, He actually had a 751 OPS. That was seventh highest by a Twins rookie. And then, you know, kind of just to list, um, that was over the past 20 years, by the way, for the Twins rookie stat. Um, You also have guys like Alex Kirilov, I think is how you pronounce his name, who's 25. Uh, Joe Ryan, who's 26. Duran, who's 25. You got Trevor uh, Larnach, I think is how. I can't really read my own handwriting here. Who's 26 years old. I believe that's it, yeah. Or Larnach. He was one of the – Larnach, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, he was one of the Twins' leaders in war before his core uh, muscle surgery last year. And I just kind of think, like, they, they have a lot of guys that could make this a well-rounded team, a lot of young guys, like I just mentioned. But will it come together for the Twins? I don't really think so. I think the Guardians are poised to take the division. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think it's the Guardians. I don't really think it'll be that close either. Um, the White Sox were, they're always kind of the team that's supposed to be contending for it, but they lost Rodon. They lost Jose Abreu, and I feel like they didn't do enough in the offseason for me. They pick up Andrew, uh, Andrew Benintendi. Uh, I believe they made uh, two more pickups, but nothing that really moves the needle in my mind. And 
for me, I just don't think they did enough to keep it close. With the Twins, I, I really like what you had to say. The youth is certainly there. I need more pitching if I want, if I'm the Twins. I, I need more reliable pitching. And they just don't have that. And that's going to be their downfall. Uh, obviously, you know, the Royals, there's nothing to talk about there, nor with the Tigers. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Guardians certainly take this division. They looked so good last year. They're coming off of such fantastic momentum. And yeah, I, I I think this is finally the year where it's not like Jose Ramirez is a perennial MVP candidate. It's like Jose Ramirez is going to win the MVP. Interesting take there. He's um, not my pick. I think he's certainly going to be a finalist. He's going to be there when the year's over, and we're going to have to think he could win it. I, I just think um, I, I would like to see the Twins do well, um, but I, I pose this question to you. Do the Twins finish higher than the White Sox? Um, I think they do. They I, I, certainly I they can. Do. They certainly can, but I will say the White Sox brought a ton of players back from injury, and, and that's going to be big. If Yasmani Grandal can get his shit together behind the plate, obviously he can frame. It appears his defense is getting better. But he's got to hit the ball. He can't just walk every time. That's been his problem the last two years. Luis Robert's back and healthy. Eloy Jimenez is back and healthy. It's going to be big. And Andrew Vaughn is certainly set up to look real good this year. Been in the majors now a couple of years. And I, I really like their lineup. I can't trust that it's going to live up to the potential. But I... I think that the White Sox still have the edge over the Twins in my mind. Okay, I like it. Um, moving on to the AL West. Uh, unfortunately, I think it'll be the Astros. Um, I don't want it to be the Astros, but despite losing Cy Young winner Justin Verlander, you also have guys like Framer Valdez and uh, Christian Javier who are going to be, you know, they're going to be fantastic. I don't, I don't feel like it's that big of a deal to lose Verlander, although he was Cy Young. I, you know, you have young guys that can back that up. Jordan Alvarez, Kyle Tucker will only get better from where they are now. Um, Jordan Alvarez, uh, you mentioned, smacked the fuck out of a baseball today. 100 and what, 12 miles an hour? Uh, yes. Yeah, so looking good there. Um, Jose Abreu from the White Sox ended up landing at first base for the Astros. So they've added a good guy there. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be the, I, I think it's going to be the Astros, unfortunately. I'm in the same boat, but I think this it won't be quite as easy as, as it has been. I think the Mariners give them a fight. I, I see the Astros. I, I don't even think they're going to break 100. This would be like the first time in uh, at least a couple of years that they don't. And I, I see them probably finishing at like 97. But I feel like the big thing they're going to be missing is the consistency of Justin Verlander. Obviously, Framber and um, Christian Javier are fantastic pitchers. But they give up contact. Framber Valdez is certainly not a strikeout pitcher, and I think that's going to really bite them in the ass. And I don't know. I really like the Mariners. I think that probably come August, the Astros will probably have a pretty good lead. Uh, Mariners might make a climb back up in September to kind of push them and most likely make the wild card. I'm still chewing, so keep going. <laughs> Well, then I'll just talk about the NL East because I don't have much else to talk about the AL West. 
I'm taking the Braves. I have to. Uh, I can't. I can't set aside my bias that much. I have to go with the Braves. Probably by a few games over the Phillies. Uh, I don't trust this Mets team to stay healthy, and it's already not on a f- uh, on a good foot with uh, Justin Verlander already on the IL. But I-, I think all three of these teams could certainly make the playoffs again. I don't know if that's going to be the case. The Phillies could certainly just be shit out of nowhere. The Mets could certainly do it as well. I think the Braves are definitely the most consistent team up and down uh, when it comes to the pitching staff and the lineup. So I think the Braves win it. It definitely won't be without a fight, but you know maybe we see a hundred wins this year. Again, I, I definitely think they do, um, and that leads into my pick. It's the Braves, and Grayson. There, there should be no bias here. In my opinion, the Braves right now are the most balanced team in baseball. I, I pose that question to you. How do you feel about that statement? No, I certainly agree. I think, uh, you know, once Rizal Iglesias comes off the I.L., we'll have an elite closer. We've got the relievers with, you know, picking up uh, Lucas Lugge from the Yankees. Uh, we made a couple of other moves, and I'm totally blanking on them. But we kept a ton of guys, and that's a big part of the success that we're going to see from the Braves. Obviously, the pitching staff's fantastic with Freed when Kyle Wright comes back. Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton, you know, hasn't been the guy that we've been looking for, but certainly a guy that can still start games in the MLB. At this point, there's probably like five more guys worthy of a starting spot in this rotation. Jared Schuster, the young guy, as well as Dylan Dodd. Ian Anderson might come back up. Mike Soroka could end up in this rotation. There is no telling, but there is so much starting pitching, and it's so deep that I could see, you know, even if somebody goes down with an injury, We've got a, a very good fill-in to come in. Yeah, plenty of depth there. Also, um, you know, on the field defensively, I don't feel like the Braves have a lot of their like one-dimensional players. You have defenders and guys that can, you know, swing the fucking bat. And I feel like that's also, you know, kind of leads to what I was talking about earlier with them being the most balanced team in baseball. But to kind of, you know, shed some light on the other teams, the Phillies added Trey Turner. Um on top of Reese, or no, they added, did they add Reese this year? Who? Reese uh, Hopkins. Hoskins? No, he came oh, up with Hoskins, the Phillies. He's bad. been there for a few years, but um, he's actually out for the season, I think. Oh, uh, he I'm hurt worried. himself in spring training. Okay. Well, you've added Trey Turner there. Um, he'll get to play with Bryce Young. They also, they also added uh, Tejon, uh, Taewon, Taewon Walker? Taiwan Walker? Taiwan. Sorry. I, once again, cannot read my own handwriting. Um, so the Phillies definitely are going to have the best shot at second place, but I nobody should compare to this Braves team. I mean, I seriously think it's that good. I wanted to shed some light on the Marlins and just kind of say that I think they have a, a they have a fun young team, but with the Phillies and the Braves, there's absolutely no way for them to even have a shot. So I would like to see them come in third, but who knows with the Marlins? Yeah, there really is no telling. Let's talk about the NL Central, though, because I think the Cardinals will probably be the first team in the MLB to clinch their division this season. Really? Yeah, I oh, really I, don't know. I think the Cardinals are very good. I, I like the Brewers, but I think there's certainly players on their team that are a little too, like, they're just, they're going to underperform, and they're going to underperform at the wrong times. 
Um, and then with the Cubs, I don't trust the volatility. There's so many guys in that lineup that can just hit a slump and not get out of it. Dansby Swanson being the biggest candidate for that, but Cody Bellinger, Eric Hosmer, the three biggest additions of the offseason in the offense for the Cubs are three of probably the most volatile players they could have gotten. That's a good point. I guess whenever I was doing this, I was just kind of assuming, like, I, I was thinking optimistic for the Cubs, I guess. Maybe not very realistic, but look, you're, you're right, though, about the Cardinals. They definitely have a solid lineup. Um, NL MVP Goldie, Nolan Arenado, who both are coming off of decent World Baseball Classics. They brought in Wilson Contreras. I have a, I have a question for you, though. Yeah. How good do you think Lars Newtbar is looking after the World Baseball Classic? You think he's going to he... be a big part of this Cardinals team or just kind of be a player? On the team. So he's already batting, I believe, second in the lineup. The guy, he's coming off a phenomenal performance. He is genuinely a fantastic baseball player. And I really do think he's going to make a huge jump this season. But on top of it, the Cardinals have prospects coming up. Uh, uh, Brendan Donovan was their leadoff hitter. Uh, Matthew Libertor in the minors, who probably will end up getting called up again. A, a tough start last year, but still a top prospect. Nolan Gorman, uh, Dylan Carlson, like so many pieces on this team. And, and you brought up the, uh, the, the pickup of Wilson Contreras. That's got to be the biggest one here. Wilson Contreras is an impact player, and that's just what he does. He comes in, he smacks the shit out of the ball, a fantastic glove behind the plate, like, the guy is insanely good, and he only adds to a team that was already very good last year. I just think, you know, the one thing with the Cardinals is they're still relying on Adam Wainwright, who absolutely loved the guy. Um, I, I've pretty much grown up with him, but he's by no means an ace anymore. You have Jack Flaherty, who made nine starts in 2020, 15 in 2021 and eight in 2022. And I have a little quote from him here. I've watched three playoff losses in the last two seasons, and I haven't pitched in any of them. And that does not feel good. No one wants to go out and lose, but if we're going to lose, I want to have the ball in my hands. If Jack Flaherty can stay healthy for this team, I will agree with you that yes, they should a hundred percent probably be the first winners of their division. First people to cleanse their division. The Cardinals should. But the Cubs, man, they seem very well-rounded. And like I said earlier, maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic with how Dansby and Bellinger can play. But they also have a rotation of James Talion, Justin Steele, and Marcus Stroman that's way better than the Cardinals, in my opinion. But, you know, there, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of uncertainty around the Cubs. I just think that they're, they're a much more well-rounded team. The Brewers have good pitching, but zero bats. I mean, Christian Yelich hasn't been himself in years, it feels like. So I think the Cubs are definitely second place for sure. But the Cardinal, the Cardinals will be first, but I don't think it's going to be by a lot. I wouldn't even say the Cubs are for sure second place because the Brewers pitching just – it does it for me personally. Like yeah. Corbin Burns, absolute monster. Brandon Woodruff, one of the most underrated starting pitchers in the league. I'd consider him like a top 50 player in baseball. and. Wow. You've also just got other pieces throughout this lineup that are very good. You've got, you know, the young catcher and Wilson or William Contreras that they got from the Braves. You've got obviously Christian Yelich uh, can be fantastic. 
can certainly be below average. Jesse Winker, a huge lefty power bat, a big force against righties, wasn't today, but still hits righties fantastic. And they have the potential to be fantastic, but I think they're kind of in a similar position as the Cubs. There's firepower on the lineup. The pitching, you know, it's there. I think the Brewers certainly have the edge there in pitching, but it's just up to can they stay consistent over the whole course of the season? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I'm going to go ahead and take my spot back. Uh, if you were done with that division, yeah, and a West, I, you know, I have the Dodgers here. Um, despite losing both of the Turners, Trey and Justin, this this team still has insane talent, in my opinion. Yeah, Kirsch, Arias, Dustin May, and Noah Syndergaard as your pitchers. Freddie Freeman, Will Smith, Mac Muncie, and Mookie Betts, who is highly underrated, always has been in my opinion. Um, so awesome players there for the Dodgers. But to speak on the Padres for a second, I did some <laughs> excuse me, did some digging, Grace, on the Padres. Now, obviously, the Padres have this ridiculous, like flashy baseball team. I mean, on paper, it just looks like something that you would be like. You know, without any without any factors, you could just be like, oh, yeah, I'd have that guy on my team. Oh, yeah, I'd have that guy on my team. The Padres have. I mean, they just have such a fucking stacked team. But since August 2nd, uh, which was the trade deadline last season, the Padres only went 29 and 27. And you can make the argument, yeah, you know, they brought in guys like Xander Bogarts, and Juan Soto now has a full offseason to be a part of that team. Well, Pump the brakes a little bit because I, I'm going to make a comparison here and you're going to really appreciate this, Grayson. The Dodgers are Bayern Munich and PSG is like the Padres. The Dodgers and the players that they have have established themselves as awesome players for the Dodgers. The Padres have just kind of loaded this team full of superstars and they haven't really proven themselves. Like, yeah, they were in the playoffs last year. But they didn't, in my opinion, really make enough noise. Um, so I, I think the Padres are going to be a lot worse than a lot of people think, and the Dodgers are going to take this division. I'm entirely in the same boat with you. I, I really wanted to say that the Padres were going to win it, but you know, I, I feel like it comes down to, and what I've said with multiple other teams throughout this, is volatility, especially in the rotation. I cannot trust Blake Snell or you Darvish for that to be super consistent like they're going to need them to be. Joe Musgrove can be great. The other pitchers in that rotation can do their jobs. But Blake Snell could go out there and give up nine runs in the first three innings. Or he could go out there and shut them down for seven. There's no telling. With you Darvish, it just comes down to can he get the strikeouts or is he just going to give up a bunch of home runs because he does it all the time. Yeah, I, I like that take. And People really, you know, the Dodgers are obviously a fun team to look at, you know, on paper. But right now, I'm watching them lose 7-2 to to the Rockies. Of course, they have two people on with no outs. But, I mean, still, I, people really need to pump the brake on this Padres team. Because in sports, I mean, you would like to think, like, if your owners could give you money, you can just go out and just sign whoever the fuck you want to. But it's how the team meshes together. And I don't think the Padres have really proven to me that they can do that yet. And that's why the Dodgers are going to beat them in this division every single time. Yeah. And watch out for the D-backs to make a wild card spot if the Padres suck. 
Yeah, kind of like the Orioles. Um, definitely, you know, a sleeper team there with a lot of uh, young talent that'll turn some heads for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, I do want to ask you, who do you think you're like your wild card team? So your winners in the NL, you had the Braves, the Cardinals, and the Dodgers. Who do you think makes the wild card? So who are the three best teams Ooh. after those three? Definitely the Diamondbacks. Oh, um, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, definitely the Diamondbacks. I'm going to go... How many, there's only one wildcard game, right? And it's between two teams, obviously. Right? No, so they, they, uh, they've they changed it. So there's three wildcard teams now. Okay. Um, Phillies. Phillies, Cubs, Padres. Actually, no. Phillies, Cubs, Diamondbacks. That That's going to be my hot take, is wow. that the Padres just don't even make it i'm gonna go phillies mets diamondbacks yeah yeah i I don't trust the cubs i can't trust the nl central to provide two (laughs) playoff teams all right and then in the al uh your winners were the yankees guardians and astros yes okay so who are your three wild card teams Definitely the Blue Jays. Um, I'm going to go Blue Jays, Orioles, Mariners. Mariners. Okay, yeah, I'm essentially in the same boat. I'm going Yankees, uh, Orioles, Mariners. Dude, a Yankees, Orioles wild card would be (laughs) awesome. That'd be so much fun. It, It really would. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the MLB. I've had so much fun with the MLB. Um, Luke's got my MLB TV subscription, so he can watch all the games. We are just, we're living life over here at Second and Short, let me tell you. Yeah, we really are. Um, I just, what do you think about this game right now? Can we get like a, a game update from Grayson here? Yeah, look, this is exactly what we're talking about with the Padres. <laughs> I can't trust them. They gave up, they're giving up seven runs to the Rockies, and they're in San Diego. The only time the Rockies should score more than four runs is at home. <laughs> like, the, the Rockies lineup is truly, truly fucking abysmal. And the fact that, like, I, I need to look at the box score. I haven't obviously paid a ton of attention since, you know, doing a podcast here. But uh, let me check out the box score real quick. I'll give it a little more analysis. Well, I just wanted to highlight that. Um... Lamont, the Rockies pitcher here, just threw a 97 mile an hour. It looked like a sinker to me, just right on the yeah. edge and, of the strike. Nelson Lamette is filthy. He actually used to play for the Padres. Um Lamette. was a starting pitcher okay. with the Padres for a while. But um yeah, bro's got nasty stuff in that um that 97 mile per hour. I think it's a two seam. It's just got hard horizontal break on the arm side. Okay, I was about to say <laughs> it definitely wasn't a fastball, but he threw that shit hard. <laughs> yeah, but Look, throughout this lineup for the Padres, Juan Soto is 0 for 3 with a strikeout. That should never happen. He needs to be getting on base. Manny Machado, 1 for 2, 1 strikeout. Not not great. I, I like He hit in one of their two runs, but once again, need more. Xander Bogarts couldn't ask for yeah. more here. 3 for 3. He's got a run. Fantastic. Jake Cronenworth has to step up for this team. He's been fantastic. These last two years, his rookie year was 
absolutely amazing. And over two is just so bad. And then you've got Carpenter, who I certainly do not expect a single thing from Matt Carpenter at this point in the year. He is an August or September guy through and through. And the Rockies just got out of it. Damn. After a Juan Soto first pitch round out. Yeah, Juan Soto is really fucking me over right now. All right, and then <laughs> like, if David Dahl is in your lineup and you're not the Rockies last year, you obviously made some you, – you made a mistake because David Dahl should not be in your lineup. Obviously, Tatis just isn't ready. Um, but when he comes back, I'd assume he would replace Dahl in right field. I would prefer Tatis at DH. I don't trust his glove in the outfield. But you know what? I'm not Bob Melvin, so it's not my problem. And that, that's not a good look. The Padres had two guys on right there and just couldn't capitalize yeah. with that they, fucking ridiculous lineup. They've run in three different – they've had three different pitchers. They've given up three earned runs, two earned runs, and two earned runs. Unbelievable. Like, this is what I'm talking about with this rotation. Blake Snell, there's no telling what he's going to do. Is he going to look like the, the Cy Young-type pitcher that he was in Tampa? Doesn't look like it because he just went 4.1, gave up six hits and three earned runs. Yeah, he got nine strikeouts. I don't give a shit. You didn't stop him from scoring. Yeah, <clears throat> not a good opening day look for the Padres. I mean, who knows? Maybe they can come back in this one, but they're definitely not showing, you know, like they're – like they really want to, and the Rockies pitchers here look really nice in relief. So, yeah, what a game! Certainly, uh, an interesting game. And then update just right before we get into this Premier League stuff: uh, Cleveland and Seattle still tied up at zero in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, the Dodgers have the seven-two lead in the top of the seventh over the D-backs, and LA holds on to that one-zero lead over Oakland. Um, let's see how Tawny did today. Six innings, no earned runs, ten strikeouts, three walks, two hits. That is Shohei Otani for you, people. That's that a billion dollar contract that's impending. <laughs> yes, Just that, that looming trillion dollars for Shohei Otani. He fucking oh, deserves man. it. I, I can't say he doesn't. Yeah, I mean seriously, and but the the thing is though, and I I hope that this can change in the future. And I, I want to get your take on this because this is definitely like a systematic thing in baseball i wouldn't necessarily say it's an issue but i personally dislike how late we get japanese players into the mlb because i want to say that ichiro didn't start off um at like a young age in the mlb either and show is like what 28 yeah yeah it's just kind of like um i, I guess I'm, I'm asking you like why does that happen especially from japanese players so it i think it's something that's gonna change soon but there's not a, a fantastic um, scouting uh, ability, at least, in Japan for the MLB. Japanese players want to play in Japan, at least as of you know the last you know however many years. They want to play in Japan. It, it's you know it's the same reason American players want to play in the MLB. But the NPB and the KBO as well in Korea, they are established baseball leagues, unlike the leagues that we see in you know Central America, in the Caribbean, in South America. That's why all of those players get recruited very easily at a young age by the MLB teams, and they immediately come up. Like, 
So Japan is just a whole different situation. Obviously, they're producing fantastic players. The guys like obviously Shohei Otani and Ichiro, but um, other players, you Darvish came over, has been a very good pitcher. Um, Masahiro Tanaka, guys like him. Uh, and then, you know, the, the new guys that are coming in, um, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he was playing for Team Japan. Um, uh, I can't remember his name, but uh, Kodai Senga for the Mets. Um, Shintaro Fujinami, uh, the pitcher for the A's. Fantastic prospect there. He's in their starting roster. There is a ton of talent coming from Japan, and I think over the next couple of years, we're going to continue to see the age of those guys going down. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight Chris Bryant with his new team up at bat here. Two for four, doubling a single. Like yeah, it. I don't know how I feel about Chris Bryant being on the Rockies, but whatever. I don't. I don't either. I mean, he's not going to get to the postseason with this no. team. <laughs> Never. <laughs> that will never happen. All right, let's talk about the Prem. Let's do it. It's coming back from the international break, and us Americans are going to have to wake up bright and early on Saturday to watch a fantastic <laughs> match. Uh, Man City versus Liverpool is getting played seven thirty a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Liverpool has some relatively big inactives in this one. Uh, Tiago Alcantara still out. Uh, Luis Diaz is still out. Uh, Jordan Henderson's uh, doubtful. Darwin Nunez doubtful as well. That loses a lot of firepower from this Liverpool lineup. I I think that they're going to be fine, though. Um, this Liverpool team, they have to be hungry. You still got Nunez, who has seemed to find his uh, found his spot on the wing uh, rather than a striker. But... Manchester City, man, have been flying recently. Um, and this Liverpool team is kind of just, it's its a lot better than it was, you know, two months ago. But it's still kind of, it, it's shaky. And Liverpool's away record going into the Etihad this weekend, three wins, three draws, seven losses. Not where you want to be at if you're going to play a loaded team like Manchester City. And also a team that Holland seems to be finding his early season form again and is just scoring for fun basically. Well, so at the um, moment, uh, Holland is doubtful uh, with a groin injury. That's what oh, okay. kept him out of the um, kept him out of the Norway team for the international break. It looks like that's still looming. He's doubtful. He's not out, but might not see him. And then Phil Foden is out until early May. Uh, so they're missing some firepower in this offense. They certainly are deep enough to bring it back. Uh, you know, they'll have Jack Grealish most likely on the left wing, and then you'll throw in Alvarez at striker. It's certainly fantastic replacements, but they don't fully fill the void. It's very hard to fill the void of Phil Foden and Erling Holland. Oh, 100%. Um, and I, I just wanted to keep talking about um, Liverpool here for a second. They haven't completed over a, um, they haven't completed a double over City for um, – it's been a long-ass time uh, in 17 seasons. They've only done it twice. The most recent was uh, with Klopp's actually debut season, 2015-16. to 16, Liverpool beat City in both at Anfield and the Etihad. I, I'm actually going to predict it'll happen again this year. I think Liverpool are going to beat Manchester City. I, I really do. I, I don't know. I still trust Manchester City to create chances. And, and that's the biggest thing. Kevin De Bruyne, first in the Prem in big chances created with 24. 
But on the Liverpool side, they haven't scored in their last two matches. They haven't scored in three away matches. I don't trust them to get a win at Etihad Stadium. Yeah, um, but I didn't trust them to get a win at Old Trafford over United, but they scored seven times and didn't let up a goal. So, you know, Liverpool are one of those teams where the stats never back them up. But when they seem to be in a corner, you know, and, and with a position to really make a statement, they usually show out against the bigger teams. I'm going to go Liverpool 2, City 1. I'm going to go City 2, Liverpool 1. I like it. Just a flip-flop. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about Arsenal versus Leeds. These are two teams in interesting positions, really. Arsenal, of course, sits atop the Premier League with twenty or sorry, with sixty-nine points. That's uh eight clear of Manchester City in second. Leeds, however, in fourteenth with twenty-six points. That only leads the leaves them three points clear of twentieth place. So this is a big one. There is certainly teams this weekend that could pick up some points that are in the relegation zone and anybody really behind Leeds could pick up some points here and Leeds could plummet into the relegation zone if they take a loss here. Which, I mean, they're playing Arsenal, Grayson. Um, (laughs) Leeds are really, really not in a good spot here um, at all. Especially with Saka coming off of a fantastic international break, getting a goal against Italy, I believe, too. So. Arsenal are looking really good, um, really, really good. Of course, it, it felt like maybe it was kind of a month ago where Arsenal was kind of slowing down. They hit some bumps in the road, but now they've found you know their form again, and they're kind of right up there with City as far as how hot they are right now. Um, but like you said, you know, Leeds are backed into a corner. They are three points away from 20th place, sitting at 14th place, which is just – Still so cool to me that the Premier League is this close this year. But uh, Leeds Leeds just have no chance here. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, there is some key inactives on both sides, really. Uh, Tyler Adams is out uh, for Leeds with a hamstring injury. Um, Stuart Dallas still out with that broken leg. Maximilian Wober, um, he's out with a hamstring injury until late April. They're pretty screwed there. But then Arsenal, they're going to be missing... Uh, most likely William Saliba, uh, Thomas Partey, and uh, Kieran Tierney uh, are all doubtful in this one. So the defense is taking a bit of a hit there. I still have Arsenal, probably two nil. I, I was saying, I was thinking the same thing, two nil for Arsenal. Um, I have a I have a question for you though, Grayson, in regards to this game, and I guess to just mainly in regards to Leeds, Weston McKinney on Leeds, right? Finally had moved to a team, you know, as an American in Europe, really prove himself. He had already been playing at Juve with the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and, you know, all of those guys in Italy and kind of worked his way into like some of the Champions League and Serie A lineups. But he's come to Leeds and not really had the best effect on them. Do you think Weston McKinney has hit his cap? I don't think he's hit his cap. I think he's run into the brick wall that is the Premier League. Okay, and, and what do you mean by that? Just the Premier League is the best in the world? Yeah, look, it's it's significantly different than playing in Italy, and I think that that's taking a toll on him. It takes time to get used to playing in the Premier League, especially a young player in, in the midfield. The midfield is very hard to play in the Prem. So a majority of the best midfielders in the world 
play in the Premier League, and it makes it like 10 times more difficult when you have to play this field general position against guys that are every single week you're going to play a world-class player. I I 100% agree with that, and that's actually something that I've never thought before until you just brought up the point that it is harder to play like a center-mid role in the Prem because, look, I feel like in other leagues you can have – Maybe one or two – a standard formation would have three central midfielders, or at least the way that I would, you know, normally run my team if I was a manager. You have your, you know, kind of brute guy, the guy that's a little bit more defensive-minded, uh, a guy that's really athletic. And then your other center mids kind of just got to be sort of playmakers, I feel like, kind of the the offensive guys, the ones who can pick out the passes – and all the long balls, you know, um, the wingers making the runs and the strikers making the runs, you need guys that can pick those guys out. In the prim, I feel like if you're a center mid, you have to kind of do everything. You have to be that big physical presence because the Premier League is, you know, full of just wardrobe looking like players. It's kind of ridiculous. But you also have to be a playmaker. And you also have to do that for 90 minutes. So I, I agree with you. It is harder to be a center mid in the prim because – you're asked of more. You have to do it all in the print. Yeah, it's a, a giant change. And you, we were both going 2-0 there? Yes. All right, let's talk about Chelsea versus Villa. Two, They're tied right now in points at 38. Um, you know, it's easy to say that Chelsea's the better team, but once again, we look at that inactives list, and it just makes me wonder because – Azpilicueta still doubtful from that concussion that I feel like he's been out for like a month. Yeah, I mean, it's a nasty injury. Wesley Fofana with the thigh injury, he's doubtful. Obviously, Thiago Silva out. Reese James doubtful. Raheem Sterling still out. Pierre Emerick Aubameyang luckily is not going to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mason Mount got a hip injury. He's going to be out. Kai Havertz is doubtful. He's sick right now. Eduard Mendy. Got a broken finger. He's doubtful. And Armando Brogia, which, you know, not a big game changer. He's got a knee injury. That is a laundry list of fucking players. That are and another one, um, another one that I wanted to add to that is they're also saying that even though N'Golo Conte has been practicing with Chelsea, he also stayed in London uh, whenever the French call or the French Euro qualifiers happened. Um, he wasn't called up and stayed in London. And I, I've seen him, you know, obviously I've seen him in training. I think he also played in like a U21 game too. Sometimes they allow players coming off of injury to do that. I don't know if you knew that, Grayson, but like, for example, Petr Cech in 2015 played like an under-21 game for Chelsea. Yeah, I have a feeling it's kind of like a rehab assignment like they do in the MLB. Exactly. And I've also heard that N'Golo Conte might also be doubtful for this game. Um but on the other side, Matty Cash, the Polish right back, he was taken off versus the Czech Republic in the Euros. He's looking like he's going to be out. Um, you also have Coutinho and Kamara that are doubtful. So, you know, there's injuries on both sides. A lot of the ones you mentioned have kind of been, you know, for the entire season. So Chelsea have already had time to adapt, but still big injuries nonetheless. Um, it, it's just a game where both both of these teams are in a position where they have to show out here. Um 38 points is still not far away from sixth place for both of these teams. And it's getting down to the end of the year. Both of these teams will be looking to get a win. So I, I think this is a really underrated game this weekend. Yeah. Look, Villa has 
certainly overperformed what we expect out of them on a year-to-year basis at least. Obviously, Chelsea underperforming what they should be at, but I, I you can't argue with the results. You know, Chelsea's coming off of a draw um, against uh, Everton, who really has been bad as well, uh, yeah. but uh, Aston Villa coming off a 3-0 win over Bournemouth, but they drew West Ham the week before it. And look, it's just, it's a week-to-week game here, especially at the middle of the table, because obviously it drops off after Villa, but, you know, with Brighton, Brentford, Fulham, Chelsea, Villa, and Liverpool for that matter, they're all four points apart, and every single week is a grind. So this one's going to be really tough between Chelsea and Villa. I think they draw 1-1. I'm going to go 3-1 win Chelsea. I think Ollie Watkins is going to score the goal for Villa. Ollie Watkins. I think uh, Jao Felix is finally going to get on the board for Chelsea. He had a great um he had a great Portuguese game. I forget who they played, but I know he scored. Oh, look, I do want to ask you. I was thinking about this earlier uh with sure. Chelsea. So, you know, at some point all of these guys are going to come back from injury. Do you feel like Chelsea has overloaded this team with starting level talent? Yeah, I, in a way, I kind of do think so. But I think that there are some expendable players that Chelsea have that they can get rid of. Um, one of them being Christian Pulisic. Yes. But the fact that he started against Everton over... Um, I think it's, it's pronounced Maduke, but he's like a, a young um, English winger yes. who's done well for Chelsea. And, and Mikel Mudrik, who he brought in for billions of dollars. Of course, it's an exaggeration. But the fact that Pulisic comes off of injury and just gets to start over those two guys, absolutely criminal, in my opinion. And um, it, it, I almost I almost wish that that I, – I forget who he played. I think it would, may have been Lester. I almost wish we lost that game because I, I'm starting to get a little bit fed up with Graham Potter. And I'm, I'm going to get really pissed off if Pulisic keeps getting time over Maduke and Mikel Mudrik. Yeah, Noni Maduke needs to be getting minutes. He is fantastic. He's got a fantastic skill set, fast, great passer, solid, just uh, kind of the prototypical wing player. And he does a fantastic job. He just isn't getting looks in the lineup. And Graham Potter has enough on his table. The last thing he needs is great, like good players wanting to play and him not playing them because it's just going to cause distrust within the team that is going to get him fired. Exactly. Um, But, you know, like I said, I think there's a lot of guys that with the talent we've brought in can be shown the door. um, And one of them being Christian Pulisic. So, yes, I think Chelsea have loaded their team a little bit too much. But I also don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. All right. Let's talk about West Ham versus Southampton. We're only talking about this because of you know, relegation. It's, it's truly on the line here between these two teams especially. And I, I think, you know, as much as you could say this is going to be a bad game, it's 18 versus 20. Whoever loses this one severely in a bad spot. A hundred percent. And this is just kind of going to have to be a dogfight between the two. Um, of course, West Ham getting the draw over Villa 
which is a, a really good draw for them. Villa, Villa haven't been that bad lately, and that draw is kind of a bump in the road for them. So good job on West Ham for that. And then Southampton, Grayson, on the other end, got Antonio Conte fired at Tottenham, <laughs> essentially. So with that um, that 3-1 comeback versus Tottenham. So both of these teams are kind of coming off of draws that were really good results for them. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to see how this one's going to play out. Yeah, I, I think it's huge. And just across the whole bottom of the table from 12 down, a lot of them match up this weekend. You've got West Ham, or, uh, West Ham versus Southampton. You've got Crystal Palace versus Leicester and Nottingham Forest versus Wolves. The only teams down there that aren't matching up with teams already in the relegation zone are Bournemouth playing Fulham, Everton's playing Spurs, and Leeds obviously playing Arsenal. Those three teams, like, realistically, Leeds and Nottingham Forest could be in a better spot this week than the other teams down there, even if they lose. Because just three, or at least two teams behind them could lose. Leicester and West Ham could drop points to Crystal Palace and Southampton. Southampton could jump out with a win and jump one of these teams that looks better than them. It's just based on this week-to-week matchup. In, in the bottom of the table, I'd say is more exciting right now than the top. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, and this game is, you know, two of those teams in relegation zone trying to dog it out, which can't, it, it really doesn't get more exciting than that, especially at this um, at this point in the season. Look, one of these teams, Grayson, only one of these teams, is the team that got Antonio Conte fired. I'm going with a 2-0 win for Southampton over West Ham. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty easy to say that this should probably be like a nil-nil draw. So I'm just going to take that. I feel like it's just so bad. I will say that West Ham is unbeaten in five home games. I'll give them that. And Southampton haven't scored in two away matches. But just because they're unbeaten doesn't mean they're going to win. Um, I'm going nil-nil. I like it. They both average under a goal a game. That's lovely. <laughs> All right. A chance not to get relegated. <laughs> yes. Both of them have a chance to not be relegated. All right. The last one, a fantastic matchup. Newcastle versus Manchester United on Sunday. I'll actually be able to wake up and watch this one because it's at a manageable time (laughs) at 11.30. But a bunch of inactives here. Casemiro, of course, suspended. It wouldn't be a Premier League game for Manchester United if Casemiro (laughs) could actually play in the game. He needs to stop choking out other players. (laughs) (laughs) And then a ton of key inactives here. Rafael Varane, doubtful. Marcus Rashford, doubtful. Donny Van Beek's already out for the season. Christian Eriksen, out. Anthony Martial, out. Garnacho's out as well. Like, what is, what's left in this lineup for Manchester United without Rashford? I'll be honest, that's really all it takes. Yeah, um, they're, Manchester United are in a spot where they're going to have to prove that they're not Marcus Rashford, that they're Manchester United. Can they do it? I, I think so. But Newcastle, I think, is the main story of this game. Because, Grayson, you and I are in the same boat with Newcastle, where you and I both really, really enjoyed how well Newcastle were playing this season. Look, I mean, 
me scroll up and find it here. They've only lost three times. The only other team to do that is Arsenal, but they're in first. Newcastle just drawn more games. If you're a Newcastle fan, I, I want Newcastle and their fans, actually, but the team and their fans, you need to see fucking red in this game. You have been bullied by all the big teams in the Premier League, I feel like, but you're you're up there with them at fifth place. Manchester United beat you in the Carabao Cup, and I want to say beat them twice in a row uh, with a Premier League game with the Carabao Cup, too. You're a fifth-place team that is being owned by the team in third place. And that just can't happen. Y'all are too close in the table. I want to see Newcastle come out and fucking beat Manchester United so bad for, for their sake. I would love to see it as well. But Newcastle is going to be missing Miguel Almiron and Alan St. Maximin. Two big, big players there. That's the the big thing holding me back here. You're You're missing... Uh, a fantastic um, left mid slash left wing with St. Maximin, and you're missing your top goal scorer with Miguel Almiron. It would be tough to see a win out of Newcastle. Obviously, they could do it. Manchester United just is beat up, and the table would really get shaken up here with a win for Newcastle because they would draw on points, but Newcastle's got them. 14 goals uh, in goal differential. So no matter what, if Newcastle wins, they jump Manchester United in the table. But if Tottenham picks up a win against Everton, which is rather likely, Tottenham's going to be in third place with a win. With a draw, they still stay in fourth if Newcastle wins. But this is just a ridiculous situation here because in no world... Should Manchester United be in fifth? It, Tottenham certainly shouldn't be in third, but Newcastle is very deserving of their spot. And I want them to keep it, if not get higher. And because this team has played too well for them to keep slipping at this point in the season. And, and it, it literally just comes down to playing the big six. They just simply have to do better. They're up there with them. Why not compete with them? Because they haven't so far. Yeah, look, Newcastle's last four. Their last two matches, they win over Nottingham Forest and Wolves. Two matches before that, they lose. Manchester City, Liverpool. If they can't perform against the big teams in the Premier League, they aren't going to contend. That's what has happened throughout this season. And it just, it, it simply needs to change. This could be their opportunity. Man U is missing a ton of attacking prowess in this match with the people that are going to be out. So could Newcastle at least hold them to a draw? Possibly, but you really want a win here. I, yeah, I hope that Newcastle wins, but if I were, you know, to give a score prediction, I'm going to, I'm just going to go one, one draw. I'm going to go two, one Newcastle. They play really well away from home. I like it. All right. Anything else you want to talk about with the Premier League? Um, yeah. Um, Antonio Conte obviously got fired because of that press conference where he pretty much just called out the entire board after a brutal uh, giving up a 3-1 comeback 
tie to Southampton, who are bottom of the table and they're fourth. But still, do you think Antonio Conte really needs to get fired with fucking 28 games played? There, there's not that much Premier League left. And they're a top five team who just fired their manager. Yeah, he, he certainly should not have been fired. I don't give a fuck what he had to say. They are getting results. Their last four, they've picked up 10 points. You can't ask for much more out of this Tottenham team. And yeah, they're coming off of a draw with Southampton that they certainly should have won. And they certainly should have beat Wolves a couple of weeks ago. That doesn't change the fact that Tottenham sits in a Champions League spot right now. They have the ability to jump Manchester United this weekend, and they just fired their fucking manager. Yeah. And they're seventh point or they're seven points behind like potentially being ninth place. Yeah. It's it's wild. So yeah, completely completely wild there, but yeah, just poor timing. Antonio Conte is a great manager. Um, you know, won won the Premier League with my team. I personally I hate Antonio Conte, but is is he a good manager? Yes. Should he have been fired at this point in the season? Like you said, fuck no. Why they did it? Not too sure why. I mean, of course, he did call out your board. You know, you don't want to look sorry and and keep a you know a manager after that. But Antonio Conte was a hundred percent right about Tottenham. And that's that's really all I have to say. Tottenham should have kept him. Yeah, yeah, he shouldn't have been fired. They could have waited till the end of the season. But also, what merit do you have to fire a guy if they make the Champions League? Exactly. It's an interesting situation. But that's going to wrap it up for the Prem. Let's hit stake your claim, and then we'll get the fuck out of here. Let's do it. Luke, do you want to give me the honors, or do you want to take it? Um... I will I will take this one. All right, let's hear it. Now, this is a a bold it's it's kind of more of a scenario, I guess. I, I don't really know if this is a claim stake, but this is a, a a real possibility that I think we could see in the MLB this season. I think the AL East could potentially end up finishing Blue Jays, Orioles, Yankees. I love it. Obviously, I I pray to God that I do not live in a world where the Yankees finish behind the Orioles, but it's a possibility. They're a huge dark horse that was contending from for a wild card spot last season after being like you know just just in the dirt basically. Um, and they're you know they're only going to get better. That's that's what I always like to say about young teams is like. You may have missed out this season, but with the squad that the Orioles have, they can only improve if they're healthy. The Yankees proved last season that they can be a 40 and 15 team, but in a month towards the end of the season, they can also be as inconsistent as going 10 and 18. So I I definitely think it's a possibility. It hurts to say, but but that is my claim stake, is that the AL East could end up going Blue Jays, Orioles, Yankees. I I love that take. I'll be honest. Look, it's not even that I'm preying on the Yankees' downfall. It's that you're praising the Orioles, and they deserve it. Yeah, I mean, I don't like them at all, but... You you gotta give give it to them. They're they're having a complete you know rejuvenation finally, and 
I don't know. I, I hope we get to see some better baseball at Camden Yards because that's also just a really cool stadium. So, fuck you, Baltimore, but hats off to you. All right. We'll go ahead and stake my claim. In, in this one, I, I did write last night, actually. Um, it wasn't even a matter of, like, I wrote it today after the game happened. I think that Jacob deGrom is going to have a healthy season. But after multiple years of only seeing a small sample size, he's not going to perform at the Cy Young level over this whole full season. Okay. And it just so happened that he didn't perform at that level today. But I just, I don't think he can do it for a full season anymore. It's really hard when you've been injured for like three years straight to just come out and do it. Like, I get it. Verlander came off of a full year off and won a Cy Young. I just... I don't trust this history of Jacob deGrom. So that even if he has a healthy season, I just don't think that he can keep up with the other guys in this division, especially in the Cy Young race. I I like that. Um, And and personally, to kind of um, go off of that, I would rather have a player go be out for an entire year and come back than to have like four seasons where they can never log in an entire full season without being hurt. I I personally think it's better to miss an entire year than to never be healthy. Yeah. And that's Jacob DeGrom. Yeah. And on top of that, you're putting him in in a completely new environment. Of course, he's talented enough to, you know, show his ass anywhere he goes, but you're exactly right. He's, inconsistent as far as his health goes on top of the fact that he's with a completely new team that's not necessarily you know we both talked that they could be a dark horse but they're not you know going to compete really for a playoff spot probably so if i agree with this take a lot actually if Degrom's downfall is going to happen this is the season it's going to happen during so i i love that take grace that's a good one all right well we've got a fantastic weekend of baseball ahead of us We've got the draft coming, and it's now less than a month away. I am, I'm so excited for for what what's to hold from sports, you know, going into the summer, and what we have for you guys going into the summer. A whole lot of great stuff is going to be coming your way, and you don't want to miss it. Nope, not at all. I'm, I'm yeah. Just, just happy that baseball's back, man. I mean, this Thursday has just been so awesome. I wish I didn't have to work today and I could have actually like really followed what was going on. But hey, it's it's all day, so I got to go to work and come back to more baseball. So yeah, there's nothing better. All right, and like I said, you got to stay in touch with everything going on here. We're ramping it up. Once the summer comes around, it's gonna be just ridiculous how much effort we are going to be putting in. You got to be following us on all the social medias, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, uh, join the second and short Reddit. I really want to get that going. It's hard to consistently go on there though. And make sure that you are looking out for everything. Uh, We're going to be trying to make some more content outside of the podcast this summer, which I think could be super entertaining. Um, just so much stuff coming, and I can't wait for everybody to see it because me, Luke, and Brock, we've been busting our asses for, what, this this podcast is almost six months old uh, at this point. 
which is wow. so crazy to me. That, um, that really puts it in perspective. Yeah, we started in the first week of November of 2022. So it's, it's huge. Um, I love it. So we're going to keep doing it. I know you guys love it. I've been hearing the feedback. So without further ado, Luke, let's get out of here. Let's do it. Deuce, guys. Peace.